like MAGA versus the um, the liberal elite. That was sort of season one or season two since we've become like an absurd reality show. Season three, season four is MAGA is going to be stepped. The, the big man himself is going away. Trump is a character who's killed off. You know, it's at the end of season two. And then, yes, it's it's Musk. You know, it's it's Andreessen. It, it, it's Teal. This is these are the alternatives. And they are, you know, they thought that the the MAGA people were the real threat. They were never they were never the real threat. They didn't have the brains. They didn't have the organization. They didn't have the control of issues. They didn't have the idealism. The idealism is is very important. You don't meet idealism with uh, self interest or just with uh, instinct or just by, you know, watching TV. Um, you beat it with idealism plus resources plus confidence. And that's, I think, that that's like sort of, I think, the, uh, what we might be moving into in sort of the next chapter of our po- political and culture war. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today, I'm speaking with a guest who I'm sure is familiar to a lot of you, Richard Hanania. It's his second time on the show. He's the director of CSPI and a prolific writer at richardhanania.substack.com. In this episode, we discuss his piece, The Psychological Theory of the Culture War, the role of status, envy, and anxiety in political decision-making, whether the Republicans can become a quote-unquote smarter party and what that entails, effective altruism, rationalism, and finally, what future we either of us have in influencing either party and in influencing politics in general. As always, the number one thing you can do to support the show, and this applies this time uh, in particular, I think, is if you know someone who you think would enjoy the show, then just let that person know, either in person or online. It's the best thing you can do, and if this person has similar interests as you, similar habits as you, the odds are you're helping him or her out at the same time. Great for me, and also great for you, great for your friend. You can also help us out by leaving a review, leaving a comment, suggesting future guests, and or leaving a rating. Without further ado, here's Richard Hanania. Overrated or underrated? Ronald Reagan. <laughs> uh, depends on uh, who. I think, uh, you know, probably most people we talk to, uh, conservatives, uh, probably underrated. I think he was um, he was right on the big issues. He was sort of uh, ahead of his time on this, or maybe behind his time on the civil rights stuff. I mean, <laughs> just perfectly positioned behind his time, like, you know, you know, the Goldwater position and also people now realizing uh, the problems of civil rights law. Uh, you know, the taxation, the, you know, the, lo- the lower taxes, lower regulations. I still think that's the right way to go. People are like, oh, you know, this has been discredited, like discredited by what I mean, I, I just think I, I don't think you know the U.S. has had particularly bad economic growth. We've had other problems, but I don't think we've had particularly bad economic growth um, over the past few decades. So yeah, underrated by um, the right, and I guess probably underrated by uh, everyone else because you know liberals don't don't like him either. Yeah, I would think that the left uh, dislikes Ronald Reagan more than the right uh, writ large. Uh, Actually, what's interesting is that I don't think most of the right-wing criticisms are actually about, you know, his effect on the country. Uh, the, more, the most simple one would be something like this, right? It would be like, uh, there are two ways to basically build up power, build up political power. 
which is to train people who are loyal to you and to gather money in like explicitly political funds. And Ronald Reagan or like libertarianism writ large does neither of these things. Right. And so the, the argument is that it's just a self-terminating strategy. Yeah. Although you can like look back and say, well, liberals run everything. Uh, look how terrible, you know, everything is. And uh, the previous generations really didn't do anything. And, you know, it's like, you know, we, we, we've not gone as far as some of like, you know, the other Western countries. So, you know, I think the civil no, society. Uh, local, local governments, I think they have a lot more autonomy, uh, than people realize. And like, you know, given how, uh, overwhelmingly liberal our elite are, you know, it's sort of, uh, American conservatives have anything. Right. It, it, it does look like it's part of, I would say just on a glance, I'm not an expert in this, but that's really a kind of historical legacy, right? If you just look at First Amendment case law, it's not, it's not anything you know, it's not anything about like the fights of conservatives in recent years or in like the, even like the past few decades that that gave, gave us First Amendment case law. And really, that's that's one of the bulwarks that exist in the states that just don't exist anywhere else. Right. Yeah, that, that you know, that that's that's right. And then like, the, you know, the religious liberty, liberty stuff. I mean, are, are you know, are. You know, somebody I heard once say, you know, the Amish couldn't survive in, in Germany. Like, you know, they, they, they wouldn't, there wouldn't be an Amish community and everything between that and, you know, normal conservative Christian people who want to uh, run their lives. So there is like opt out to the system. The homeschooling uh, battles were, you know, homeschooling was pretty much illegal in uh, almost all the country uh, just a few decades ago. You know, people don't realize this. And now it's legal uh, in every state. And, you know, there's not even much oversight. You could pretty much do what you want with your kids. Um, you know, I don't know if that's like theoretically the best possible thing in the world, but in a world where, uh, uh, with, you know, today's public education system and today's elites, I think having an op, uh, opt out option is pretty good. And probably in most systems, I would, uh, I would say that. So yeah, we do have a lot of, you know, we do have sort of more liberty than people, uh, uh, people often think. Right. I think that something was very notable, uh, about actually specifically about the United States is that especially if you're basically, if you're like upper middle class, it's very easy to shelter yourself, right? I've kind of like thought these things through. Uh, someone who probably takes some of the maybe more, you know, more um, hegemonic views more seriously. I've kind of thought about like, okay, what would I do in the situation where, for example, you know, uh, police in cities are like actively politicized, right? And just looking through, you know, what are the options available to you as just like an like reasonably uh, a reasonably high income uh, American citizen? Like, yeah, it definitely does seem like it's just much easier to kind of exit, at least in a, in like a soft way from the from the kind of overall hegemonic system than it is in basically any other country. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's yeah. right. I mean, there are, you know, there was a couple, there was a, some years ago, a family from Germany, they wanted a, a asylum because the on religious freedom grounds, because uh, Germany wouldn't let them homeschool their kids. 
So you see, like, you know, there's just there's just this uh, norm in sort of you know Europe and uh, uh, you know uh, I don't know I don't know much about Canada, but at least in uh, Western Europe, um, there's a very much you know stronger sense of the government will tell you what to do, and if you don't like the elites, that's a terrible state of affairs, and you're going to try to get you know asylum somewhere else. So yeah, in many ways we're lucky. I think COVID really drew this home. You know, after the uh, you know after the first few months after vaccines, I mean, especially you know every other restriction became ridiculous, and they were doing lockdowns like the Netherlands and, uh, you know, and, uh, with Omicron, you know, at the end of, uh, at the end of 2021, just a year ago. Um, and, you know, like in the U S I mean, the fact that we have federalism, um, I think, you know, I think moderates things a bit. I mean, it's hard to have lockdowns that, you know, the same, the same country, uh, other, other places aren't paying attention at all. And the fact that there were some places that didn't care about COVID didn't do anything at all. I think, you know, that put some financial, uh, uh, pressure, you know, the people were leaving the, uh, the really COVID hysterical states and going, uh, elsewhere, but also just like sort of cultural pressure, uh, to sort of move along. Um, I, you know, I think we, we were lucky in that respect too. Right. Do you think interstate migration, uh, actually played a role in the midterm results? I looked at the data. I was trying to explain, uh, DeSantis's, uh, uh, overwhelming victory. Um, and I had a recent Substack on this, um, and it doesn't appear that it's like big enough to like, you know, might have added, I don't know, I don't remember the numbers, but like a percent or something to Florida. So like, you know, him, you know, having 20, doing 20% better than he did in uh, 2018, migration couldn't explain that. Now it could be possible, you know, there's a social network effect where like, okay, the people who move there are like whatever the few hundred thousand people who like are just obsessed with politics and they like evangelize like conservatism or anti-masking or uh, low taxes or whatever. And like the other people just sort of go along with it. And these, you know, few uh, refugees have a uh, outsized effect. Um, I haven't seen anybody really like test this theory to like see if there's like some kind of network effect here that might be making some places more conservative or, or uh, more liberal. You know, they talk about California's going, Californians going to uh, other states and maybe changing them. You know, often, you know, the migrants, Americans don't move around that much, especially in the short term. It's hard to just the, you know, the de- by sure demographics change the politics of a, of a state. Um, and so, but no, I, I would be interested in somewhat researching and trying to, you know, theorize about these sort of network effects that might be important. Right. Actually, something else that might be a very big factor, I think I heard it, it was the 538 podcast talking about this, you know, like Nate Silver and uh, those guys. And they were talking about how Republicans made gains in basically areas that didn't matter. Uh, for the house and losses in areas that didn't matter. So they did like quite poorly in the suburbs, but they made gains both in the cities and in rural areas. And so, you know, you had basically like not even necessarily gerrymandered, but just because, you know, cities, you had very densely packed support for uh, Democrats. And this apparently this kind of like geographic imbalance was, uh, was at least moderated in, in 2022, if not flipped. I mean, like that, that kind of relates to your, that kind of relates to your, uh, class and, uh, conservatism as an oppositional culture analysis, right? Uh, what do you mean? How does that relate to that? I I think it's like pretty straightforward. So like basically, so the 538 people found, I haven't dug into this too much, but the 538 people found there's been much more gaining in both rural areas and in cities. Oh, right? oh you knew. You, yeah, knew and, you, you mean it very literally, like the 
Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The original opposition culture is joining forces with the new opposition. <laughs> uh, maybe. No, but if you it's think like, about it, like this does not seem this does not seem too far fetched to me that the kind of appeal of you know someone like Trump or someone like you know um, Doctor Oz, right, or like uh, maybe not maybe not Blake Masters. I think he's a different he's a different yeah. kind of guy. But like Dr. more like Herschel Walker. Oz. Herschel Walker is a great example. Yeah. Yeah, you might be, you might be on to something there. This is the, this is the, you know, you don't have to talk about urban areas. You could talk about the sort of the black and Hispanic, you know, the, to a limited extent, the, the black shift, uh, uh, much more, less of the Hispanic, like during the, during the 2020 at least. Um, yeah, like conservatism could be becoming the most, you know, sort of the, you know, a cross-racial coalition of like, uh, you know, the poor and downtrodden. You know, if you ever look at like a Q rally, uh, it's the most, uh, demographically diverse conservative, uh, rally or organization I've ever seen. It's just the lowest common denominator. People hear voices in their head and are, you know, people who read the National Enquirer. Um, so yeah, it could be that. I wasn't thinking of that angle as far as like when I wrote that oppositional culture piece, I was more thinking of metaphorical. I wasn't thinking in terms of like these oppositional cultures merge into one thing, but, but maybe, yeah, there's something to that. Yeah. Actually, I should, I should tell this story, you know, like, when I had zero, when I had zero followers, I was on, mm-hmm. I was on Clubhouse and I ran into like Ali Alexander. Do you know who Ali Alexander is? No, of course. Yeah. 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 I, I, I unfortunately follow all this. I, I, I just love the spectacle. So yeah, I, I follow these guys. Yeah. So, so for the audience, he's one of the, he's one of the stop the steal guys. And I just ran into him like randomly on Clubhouse and he was just like very pro Bitcoin. He was just like aggressively pro Bitcoin. And we we're talking in these rooms mostly about like cryptocurrency. It's like, but I just had like no idea. I just had like no idea, you know, what this guy like does like home for a living or like does, does with like most of his time. And like, this seems this, this kind of like basically cross-pollinization there there's a kind of like there's a kind of like classic liberalism that sees us as a positive right but to me at least this is something that's like very that you can be like very wary of in terms of in terms of having a coherent political movement i guess we should stop we should stop kind of like giving an extended intro to this basically and just talk about uh your most recent piece or not your most recent piece at this point, but your, uh, at least to me, like your most recent, like very big piece, the psychological theory of the culture war. What are you trying to, what are you trying to point out there? You know, the first thing I think this is, you know, I don't like, you know, what I, uh, I, I can sort of help people understand this theory in the context of like theories that I don't like to explain the culture. War. I don't <laughs> like, like, globalization or like Peter Church and I, and I find his work very silly or people who think, Oh, the manufacturing jobs were sent away. You know, it's very easy. You can just look at the correlation and like the decline in manufacturing versus like populism. However, you want to measure by country, there's not a strong connection. You could see, I mean, Germany and Japan, for example, you know, lower, uh, uh, you know, they have, uh, you know, they, they've seen a lot, they've seen, they've seen a loss of manufacturing as percentage of jobs. And, you know, there's not a lot of populism there. I mean, and, and you have like, you know, economic, you have economic booming, these, uh, countries in Eastern Europe. You know, they've, uh, they've gone, they've had great economic times and they've had, you know, po- they've had populism, uh, you know, right wing populism that's stronger than in the West. So I, I don't like these theories. I think they fundamentally un- misunderstand like what's moving the masses. 
I mean, they're moved by, you know, financial, like microeconomics is true that they're, you know, motivated by, you know, financial self-interest, but that doesn't aggregate to acting as a, as a class. Um, so like what's going on here? So why, if it's not like some economic, you know, uh, globalization or something like that, um, I think you have to look in sort of, uh, broad, you know, broad economic dynamics, but they're going to have an indirect influence, not like, oh, this class sees this in its interest and this class sees that in its interest. It's more like, you know, we have more, uh, we have more, uh, we have more wealth. So wealth changes countries in a, you know, a thousand different ways that first world countries, uh, are different than third world countries. And so I think one thing you have a, a universally is sort of separation, uh, between, um, classes and class can be, you know, it's a, you know, you could think about an economic term, you know, more like, it's more like finding like, it's like rich are going with rich, poor going poor, but also, you know, they're sorting on like values, um, and, you know, conservative or, or liberal or whatever. Um, and then you, you know, you also, you also have sort of this, uh, um, you know, you have, you have this, uh, you have this sorting and you have the communications technology too. That's another big part of it. You have the internet and I think, I think you have a more inclusive and this is, you know, this is a idea that you could develop, you know, you could take very far in its, its own right. Uh, you have this more sort of inclusive public space in the 1990s. All you had, I mean, you got, uh, CNN and like Fox News near the end of the 19, uh, or CNN was always there, but you know, Fox News, um, uh, at the end of the 1990s. Uh, but then like, you know, most people either they listen to talk radio or they watched, you know, they read a local paper or they watched one of the, you know, the big three, uh, uh, newscasts at night. And it was like, boring to most people. It was like a, a, a not very inclusive uh, conversation. It was like you had to be capable of like following along with, you know, and interested enough to follow along with budget disputes. It wasn't like Jerry Springer, which is sort of what our politics are like now, which, you know, makes everyone uh, sort of comfortable. So you have, I think you have these, uh, you have this class segregation. You have this uh, inclusive uh, you have this sort of, uh, in, in this technology, this technology that, uh, uh, makes it more inclusive. And I'm using this in a very neutral sense, like brings more people into the conversation. Like, you know, Twitter, uh, you know, you just have, uh, 280 characters. Anybody can say anything to anyone at any, any point. And I think these, these, these dynamics sort of explain things. So I think the, uh, I think the elite, they need a way to differentiate themselves. I think from the masses, I think blank slateism has become stronger. It was always a problem for the last several decades, but I think with the great awakening, um, it's become worse. And a lot of the great awakening, I mean, Scott Alexander's piece about, uh, observing the culture wars, um, when he talks about him watching the, uh, uh, the feminist sort of debates just start, uh, on these internet chat boards and then, uh, and then sort of break out into the ma mainstream. I think it's, you know, there's just that happening and that happening with the, with the race stuff. We've, we've, we've become more of a blank slateist, uh, society. Well, as like we're getting wealthier and like there's more opportunities to, for people to segregate. And so this is the, uh, and so this is the sort of dynamic here where the elite need new ways to separate themselves from the masses, you know, and so, so, you know, you get, you get, uh, like postmodern art. Now, this is not, you know, like postmodern art and architecture. This is not new that came out the last 20 years, but sort of like politics sort of, you know, these things happen earlier and, you know, you need a theory as to why this happened earlier. Maybe it's the same thing I'm talking about, but just like at an earlier point in history. But like politics has sort of become like political views or sort of like, you know, postmodern art. It's like, oh, you can't realize that the criminals are actually good and, you know, men are actually women and, or, you know, people can have whatever gender they want. Okay. Like, you know, I have this idea, this aesthetic or this aesthetic taste or this moral sense that normal people can't understand. The masses, they notice this. Um, they notice this because they evolved not to do algebra or moral philosophy. They evolved to understand uh, interpersonal dynamics, and they know when other people have contempt for them. 
And so they move in another direction. There's sort of a uh, polarizing uh, behavior. And this, this ends up being reflected in our politics where one party becomes the, uh, you know, the, the party of the prototypical higher class. So one becomes the party of the prototypical lower class. And that's sort of the idea of these culture war. That's sort of the theory in full. Right. I think it's actually really underrated the extent to which all of this is basically driven by like status anxiety. Right. And I don't want to be too overreaching. It's not like literally all of this, but a lot of, I think a lot of the social issues, at least I see it as really driven by, uh, I, I think Rob Henderson has this study that he really likes putting out, which is basically like people are not afraid to dress either like two social classes below them, but they're, they're afraid of, uh, of dressing like one social class below them. Right. <laughs> okay. and, yeah. And the thing that communications technology has done, right? It's like there actually kind of is a thing closer to like an actual public square now. Before there were only really yeah. local public squares between basically people who could afford the same types of property. And now you have this kind of precarity of you can tell that that, you know, this is the the trope, but I'm sure there are many people who are actually like this and you are and as an aggregate group are quite influential people who are basically, you know, afraid of being mistaken for someone who isn't, isn't sufficiently loyal to the group uh, on Twitter, right. Or on, or even in like whatever job there, like I'm just looking at so many people around me and this isn't even necessarily like correlated with politics, but I think just like the degree of social anxiety among, among just especially young people, but also people in general, it's just like, it's, it's really quite sickening to me. And I don't remember this being a thing like five or 10 years ago. Mm. You know, uh, Ross Dufat just had an article that I just read like an hour ago. Um, and it was, uh, it's part of his, it's his newsletter. He has like a weekly newsletter now. Did you see this about like Hootie and the Blowfish and uh, Fukuyama and the end of history or something like that? Blowfish? What? Okay. No, I, you I did not see what, this article. Do you don't even know what the Hootie and the Blowfish were? No. Okay. It was a band in the 1990s. You ever, uh, uh, you ever you never heard that song? I only want to be with you. No, I've never heard this. Really? So it's a it's a nineteen nineties, but I, it was a pretty famous song. But anyway, there's a band called Hootie and the Blowfish, um, and there's other bands like Dave Matthews Band. Do you know that that is Counting Crows, Blues Travelers? Do you know any of these? Uh, I vaguely, I think I vaguely heard of Blues Travelers, but I don't know. I don't pay attention, especially to a lot of old music. Okay, well, yeah, so, so basically these bands, I mean, uh, you know, so Fuka, uh, not Fukuyama, Duthat has this article that basically these were like the bands people have argued for like the end of history in the sense that the bands were just like, you know, they were just like, uh, you know, they were, they were thinking in terms of, you know, small scale, uh, you know, the, like the joys of suburban life were enough. They, you know, they were enough. They talked about, you know, their own heartbreaks, their, uh, uh, you know, their, their, their loves, you know, this sort of teenage culture. He's talking about movies too. It was like the excitement of having sex for the first time. These were like dominant themes in the sense of like not, you know, people had, people did not, you know, it was, it was people did not sort of understand their personal angst in the context of greater, uh, some greater, you know, political or social or economic forces. Um, and that's something new. And I, I just, you know, I think it's, yeah, the question is where that where that came from, right? I, you know, the the you know the news. I think I just keep going back to. I think the news got a lot more entertaining 
it got more fun. And we sort of combined entertainment and news. And this is like not a, you know, infotainment. This is like not a new idea, but like, you know, first came like cable news and then it became like, you know, algorithms and the news. And we like combined, like, you know, we have like a moral sense and we have like an entertainment, like, uh, it's like different. It's like everyone like has a part of their brain that wants to be wants to like be involved in moral disputes or like uh, enforce norms or whatever, and then a part of their brain that just like wants to watch sports or just be entertained or whatever, right? And it seemed like these two worlds used to be separate, right? And we when we had politics, we had like moral outrages in the nineteen nineties, um, early two thousand. It was like you know this person raped somebody. Oh, this you know criminal is you know a really bad person or like you know true true crime serial killers was like a much bigger uh deal back then it's something i've talked about with rob uh, henderson in our podcast um but somehow like you know it was like uh you know it was like crack for people's brains to like combine these two into one things and that's like sort of what the internet and social media have been doing and this i think you know is a is a bad combination it brings like you know i think it sort of makes the the people who were maybe more, you know, I, I think it expands the audience for politics. Politics become people become more invested in it. More people become invested in it, um, and then it just deranges it because you bring the values, the ideas, the aesthetics um, of you know pro wrestling or celebrity culture or sports into into sort of serious political um, social issues, and you know that's the combination that I think you know has sort of taken us down this path. Right. Uh, obviously that's a pretty long kind of, uh, that, that's a pretty long model, but I think I agree with, uh, most or almost all of it. Uh, the point that I think is most interesting to me is that, uh, the extent that basically the intermediate class this kind of like, you know, we <laughs> derisively, we call them midwits, right? But basically this kind of like, I think managerial class is the wrong framing, but that's yeah. what we have. I actually really like the framing of the precariat, um, which I think is something Eric Weinstein made up, but is basically, you know, the set of people who are in a high social cl- or in like basically like a middle upper class, but are like very but have very like contingent jobs, right? If they, if they do badly one year, if they're fired, if they're, you know, if, if like a New York times reporter gets kicked out and, you know, there's some kind of scandal and they can't uh, find a new job, then suddenly they're poor, right? Basically all these people who are upper class, but are like very precarious are very unstable and very uncertain. And I think that this class is a political force um, if, if not something of like the past 20 years, then it's definitely something as the past of the past 50 years. And I do agree I, with you that this kind of like, to, to me, it's less so like the masses. To me, it's like, you know, expanding, expanding the aristocracy, like one, one layer forward, you know, not even getting to the masses yet. That That's actually, if anything, even worse. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're not fully absorbing all the masses. I mean, you still have, you know, I don't know, 30, 40% of adults don't even vote, probably. Um, uh, yeah, um, you're, you're right. Although this precarious job thing, I, I don't know how much, like, there's a difference between 
New York Times reporters who could be fired versus established reporters who can't or tenured professors versus assistant professors. I mean, us are, uh, are not assistant professors. What do they call them? Uh, yeah, before they have adjuncts. I mean, that's not before, but, uh, you know, yeah, adjuncts or postdocs. I don't think that's the division. It doesn't seem to be that there. It's like a big difference. I mean, there seems to be like, I, you know, I like the, uh, what I, the, the, uh, the sort of framing I used in the article, which I took from a pick this paper by Piketty and his co-authors, is a uh, Brahmin left and merchant right. So, like a lot of people on the merchant right, people who like you know they might be a small business owner, they're in a precarious situation economically, you know, just as much as the uh, New York Times uh, low-level reporter is. But but it's a different outlook. I, I like to think more in terms of like connected to big institutions and not connected to big institutions or like sort of the, I like to think of a trade-off between status and money, right? They're like a lot of jobs, they have a trade-off between these two. And I think there's a real big conflict by people who choose the money path and the people who choose the status path. In hindsight, to me, it's more of a perception of precarity than an actual precarity, right? I, I agree with you about like the tenured professor point. Um, but I, I do see as just a factor of both in, have you read this, uh, have you read this Michelle Goldberg article about, you know, it's the article people point to all the time when they say like Trump derangement syndrome is real, right? About her talking about her like physiological impacts of her mental illness no, and how, actually, like, like how much anxiety she feels about Trump. Yeah. I yeah. wish I would have so seen that. Yeah, she... Yeah, she follows. She's one of the big liberal journalists who follow me. Actually, I like uh, I, I like her stuff. No, I, I want to read that. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So to me, like that kind of social anxiety is very central to basically um, the, this kind of precariat, right? Or we can say like Brahmin. I don't think it's just left though. I think it's also like th- this precarity is also very common on the kind of like elite you know, staffer or like journalist rights. Uh, although I think it's a, it's probably, you know, there are studies yeah, about I don't, I don't think population differences in neuroticism, but yeah, I, I think, think it is, it is quite prominent on the right as well. Maybe not, not as much so, but that this mm. kind of like, this kind of like middle, this kind of like, uh, yeah, this precariat, I think I'm going to stick to that word uh-huh. is just riddled by this, you know, desire, this feeling like that if they miss out, if they don't, um, if they don't, you know, uh, play all of the the right social games, if they make a wrong step, then suddenly, you know, their entire world is going to collapse. You know, there's there's a big difference in their decision making. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, sorry, I was trying to butt in, but yeah, it's, uh, there's a simpler theory here, which is like, it's not about, uh, precarious, precariousness of the job. It's, uh, just, the, it's the status, uh, uh, income trade-off, but it's also, uh, there's a strong correlation between the people who choose status and neuroticism. Right. The people, right. maybe, maybe they need that status because they're neurotic. Um, uh, you know, because they're, they need the status because they're neurotic or they're neurotic because they need the status, whatever the causation, or maybe there's a common, you know, trait here. But basically, yeah, I mean, knowing people in academia, I'm um, just not knowing a lot of journalists, but like observing journalists, like on, you know, on Twitter and their professional lives, it seems like these people who have a lot of anxiety, they go, you know, they try to uh, assuage it by sort of going for, going for status. Like if you gave that, if you just 
dumped a bunch of, you know, pile of money on them and said, you know, you could go, uh, do whatever you want for the rest of their life, you know, lives. These people would be, would be miserable because they're just not looking, you know, they're not, they're just, you know, they're, they're looking for constant validation, like being able to enjoy, you know, food, travel, sex, you know, whatever things normal people enjoy. And, uh, that, that's, you know, that's not for them. And, you know, this could be, this could be framed in a noble way. This could be framed as people who need something deeper in life. And I think there is something to that. And it could be framed as, you know, it's like, you know, it could be framed that these people are deeply defective and are missing something and need to, you know, gain power or gain uh, influence or gain, you know, status, whether earned or unworn, earned at the expense of other people. Uh, but I do think these are sort of, this is what's driving people into, you know, uh, certain jobs and not others. Right. What do you think is the relationship, relationship between that and uh, politics, what politics people have? Oh, I think it's, I think it's clearly, you know, this is a left right thing. I mean, the right is the, the, the merchant right. And there's the problem in left. I mean, if you're the kind of person who, uh, let's say, let's say, uh, uh, control intelligence, uh, is the same and control race and sex and, you know, every, everything else, you know, if you're the type of person who, if, you know, somebody just gave you, uh, you know, a pile of money and said, you know, you could just go on vacation for the rest of your life, whether you'd be happy with that or not, um, I think would be a good prediction, good predictor of your uh, politics and whether you will, you know, uh, whether you will, uh, uh, you know, whether you would slave away and like, you know, take a very low paying job as like a entry level reporter or like as a uh, graduate student, hoping to, you know, one day be one of this sort of, you know, this sort of a uh, priestly class, the journalists of the academics who determine sort of, you know, tastes and culture and sort of moral values. Um, yeah, that's, you're, you're on the left, you know, unquestionably. I think that's, I think, you know, that's gets to the core of our political divide. And why is it exactly that, you know, it, it seems like it's more of a preference for basically social progressivism, right? As as much as people, as much as some conservatives like to point at, you know, like Bernie Sanders, Marxism, like that's not where the kind of basically oligarchic energy is, right? That's not where these kind of uh, Brahmin left people are going. That's more, more of a kind of uh, social progressivism. Right. So, so why is that? I mean, you have to sort of, I mean, you have to define, you know, sort of, uh, social progressivism. If you, if you're talking about like, you know, gay marriage and abortion, um, you know, that's, you know, that, that's, that's, a, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a divide, but I think that that's like, you know, people, some like that liberals, I, you know, I think would share that with like, say Silicon Valley types, you know, who are, who they don't like, you know, people like Elon Musk, you know, I think are, you know, probably uh, more liberal uh, on these issues. Um, but I don't think, you know, I don't think they're in the same sort of, you know, I don't think they come down in the same place uh, in the coalition. And I mean, you know, like whether the elites that I'm talking about, the sort of the status slash neurotic slash idealistic, you know, <laughs> if you want to give every positive and neutral and negative, you know, appellation you can to try to understand these, this thing. Um, I don't think you can easily define them as, you know, social progress. I mean, I, I, I you know, they're like, you know, yeah, they like new gender identities, but in some ways they're, you know, strong enforcers of current norms, which is like civil rights, you know, ideology and political correctness. It's, you know, deeply conservative um, in a way too. I don't see them pushing the en envelope on most things. I mean, the euthanasia debate, I get into debate with these people on Twitter and all the conservatives get mad at me. I don't see liberals like coming to my defense and like trying to push the envelope on that. It seems like, you know, <laughs> 
in a, you know, in a real sense, they're, you know, they, they're, they are like a very conservative force. They just, you know, really, really like new genders, but it, you know, it doesn't seem like connected to a worldview in favor of progress or dynamism or anything like that. Sure. But let's say, let's say on, on racial issues, right? Why, why do they seem, you know, so committed to blank slateism and, and, you know, disparate impact law, right? Let's just focus yeah. on that. Well, I think that the, well, I think that, okay, so we, you know, we said they're either idealistic or they're neurotic or they're driven by status. There are, you know, the, 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 the reality of American life, if you stop to think about it for one second, you know, I grew up, where did you grow up, by the way? Uh, I grew up mostly in Toronto. Okay, so you didn't have, uh, you didn't have the American race situation, but I grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago. Um, and, you know, it was like, uh, you go to, you go to the south side of Chicago, you know, five minutes away and you will, you, you'd be scared. Most people would be scared to walk, you know, uh, walk alone at night. I mean, it was, it was very dangerous and it was so, it was so like, you know, you know, it was so different from like, you know, one area to, uh, to the next. I mean, it was like a huge swath of the, you know, the south side of Chicago, like, you know, 25% of the city or something. Um, that was, you know, it, it varied. I mean, not every, not every corner was, you know, uh, was, uh, you know, dystopian, but yeah, there was a lot of dangerous areas and, you know, you didn't want to spend time there or go shopping there or anything like that if you were, uh, somebody for the summer. So how do you react? How do you react to this? I mean, this is like so, you know, such an obvious thing and we know about American history and, you know, there's, you can, I think conservatives, I think that traditionally has been to ignore it, just, you know, say, oh, you know, it's a, you know, you know, if they're, if they're forced, they'll maybe say, you know, welfare, uh, destroyed the black community, but in general, they just don't want to think about race. They'll just say colorblindness and everyone move on. Um, and if you're, you know, status obsessed and you're trying to get up on other people or you're idealistic, you know, alternatively, the positive interpretation, you want an explanation and you need something. And so the blank slate is a, you know, structural racism gives you an explanation of what has happened. Yeah. But if you're just looking for any explanation, explanation, right, you, you could go with the true one. <laughs> You could, you could do that, but that would, uh, that would be, um, well, they'd beat you up. I mean, like you're in these urban areas and you're like, you know, you're, you're, <laughs> you're, you know, you're the lead. You can't, you know, you go around and you, you say to the, you know, it's very fascinating. If you go back to like, uh, if you, have you ever read up, uh, uh, Pearlstein's book, uh, Nixonland? Uh, no. Okay, so it's the, the racial, uh, you know, politics of like the 1960s and 1970s. I mean, often, have you ever read the Tom, Tom Wolf novels or the like novellas? Uh, yeah. Uh, okay, I've so. read, uh, Radical Chic. That's the only one I've read. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. Bonfire of the Vanities is very good too. Um, you know, it sort of goes in, it sort of goes into this dynamic. I mean, in the sense that, you know, there was this close proximity and there was, you know, these, uh, you know, this, uh, the black community often had, you know, Sharpton types. This is Sharpton 1.0, not like the politically correct Sharpton of today, but like, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the real, you know, man of the people. Um, and, you know, a lot of it was intimidation. A lot of it was violence. I mean, the, you know, it was like, you know, there's these like Sharpton type leaders like rose up and they, they spoke, uh, uh, or at least they claimed to speak for the community and they did really have, you know, uh, some, you know, level of legitimate support. And I think it's just, you know, un untenable unless you're gonna, I mean, unless you're gonna sort of, uh, uh, really, really push back on that and maybe like, you know, be willing to, 
you know, in some cases, you know, have violent pushback. And you did get that with the lower, with the lower uh, white working class, with like the Irish and the Italians and, and some of the northern cities. But, you know, that wasn't for sort of, you know, what you call the managerial class or the, uh, or the Brahmin left. I mean, they, they, they took a different route. Right. But how much of the Brahmin, I actually don't know this, right? How much of the Brahmin left, let's just stick with that, right? Live in those areas. Uh, not many, but I mean, they set the tone for like, you know, if you live in, you know, I don't know, Oregon or something and you're not, you know, you're secular, you know, you're, you're, absor- you're, you're absorbing the New York Times, you know, at least at this point in history and, you know, MSNBC and whatever. So, you know, it's filtering down to you. Okay, wait, but how do those people in- influence the New York Times, right? Or like, why do those people influence the New York Times? So the, so what we were saying was that the, the people um, who live in the inner cities, you know, had the New York Times is in New York, right? Uh, New York City, right? Um, so that, you know, they're, they're being, they're being sort of, they have, they need, they're in the midst of this, you know, urban jungle and, you know, New York is, New York City is not as bad as it was a few decades ago. Um, but, you know, you still see it and you need an explanation. Now, this is like part of it. You also have like these academics, um, who maybe live in like, you know, the middle of nowhere, you know, and they don't have the urban problems, you know, their University of Wisconsin or, uh, whatever. Um, and this was sort of like the, um, you know, the, the transition from like Marxism to like PC multiculturalism was, you know, Paul Gottfried has written about this. Um, it was like the same with Europe. It was like the same people, like the communist party, like starts, you know, talking about hate speech. It's almost like these like old, old style leftists who are like anti-woke. They act like, you know, they're, this is a betrayal of Marxism. Uh, but you know, if you look at like the actual communist parties and like, you know, Bernie Sanders is like, you know, very woke today, of course. Um, if you, uh, so it was a seamless transition and that makes me think that the sort of these, the psychology was the same, right? It was just simply, uh, you know, it's like dislike of markets plus the, the, the a very simplistic worldview where some groups are the oppressors and some group was the oppressed. And, you know, they just replaced the, uh, the working class with blacks and, and sexual minorities. And, you know, there's an idea that, you know, me, I save the bottom of society versus, you know, against, you know, the masses out there who are sort of closer to me in, uh, uh, culturally too. Right. So it's like, you know, it's like the top and the bottom against the middle. Right. Right. Uh, I think I've agree with most of this, but I do want to hear you expand on, expand on some of the details. Do you, do you think basically like it's the same kind of psychological factor that leads people? Like, do you think there's basically like, uh, some kind of psychometric trait? that leads people to support both Marxism and kind of uh, woke progressivism? Yes, I do think there is this like status slash idealism slash neuroticism thing that sort of goes together. And, you know, whether status and idealism, like whether they can be collapsed into one thing, it's very, you know, it's very interesting. And a lot of this stuff is at a complex level. Like it's hard, you know, whether you do personality uh, inventories. It's like, you know, you're just asking people for their own self-awareness and, you know, trying to, you know, and then, you know, doing factor analysis on their responses. You know, it's harder to do when you think it's something that's sort of more complicated and goes to, uh, their true motivations. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I do think that there is some kind of trait here and maybe, you know, maybe this is the same thing as the conservative liberal divide, or maybe it's closely related to it, but you know, maybe, maybe it's not. I think that if they're closely related to each other, I think this kind of, uh, uh, you know, I think that 
like America now versus America 20, 30 years ago, if this status slash idealism spectrum exists, I think that it's, it, it's much more central to our politics in America in 2022 than it is in most times and places throughout history. Right, right. So I see this as both rooted in envy. Do, do Would you agree with that? Um, is it rooted in envy? I, okay. Um, I don't know. Like, so does like, do journalists look at Elon Musk and like Peter Thiel and say, I wish I had their, you know, uh, helicopters or, you know, whatever they spend their money on. I don't think, so. no, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I, I don't know if envy, I think envy exists at the mass level. Like, you know, it's like these polls that showed like you can get right and left, like conservative and Republican or Republican and like Democratic voters to both agree, like taxing the rich more. I think so, sort of that envy, but yeah, that, that kind of envy is like always there and it's always like a subcurrent to our politics. Is it driving, um, like the top levels of our politics? I don't, I don't think so. I think that they, I think that, you know, the, the elites and those they dislike are like two different. It's not like, you know, uh, uh, the, um, uh, the, you know, the right wing, uh, you know, the, the small business owner who makes a lot of money, like wishes he was a starving journalist in a Manhattan, uh, studio. And it's not like the guy in the Manhattan studio wishes he owned a small town hardware store. Maybe he'll, he would like to have more money. And, you know, he's neurotic about that. Like he's neurotic about everything, but you know, he could have had that life if he wanted to. Um, he had the intelligence and work ethic to, to have it. And he didn't want it, I think, because he was looking for something else. Right. So this actually goes into my, closer to my model is that basically the amount of the kind of communications technology just enables a large, much larger percentage of people to have like sheer envy. Right. And here I'm distinguishing very uh, clearly between envy and jealousy. Jealousy is um, basically like coveting something that you think that you could have versus envy is coveting something that you could, you could basically never earn right? Could earn versus never earn, right? So you might say if your neighbor who works, you know, is reasonably intelligent, is around the same as intelligent as you, intelligence as you, and about as hardworking, maybe a little more intelligent, maybe slightly more hardworking, right? But you could say like, I could have that lifestyle. And that's kind of jealousy. And envy is looking at Elon Musk, you know, no, no journalist says like, oh, I could be Elon Musk, right? But they say, the line they say is like, no one should have a billion dollars, right? There should be no billionaires. No one should have that much, uh, how, no one should have that much money. And it's like, it's like very comedic, right? Because it's, it, it's the last refuge of basically people who are kind of so clearly and totally, uh, so obviously inferior, right? Well, yeah. And, I, I, yeah. Yeah, it depends on yeah. what you're talking who you're talking about. So if you're talking about like a journalist for like Bloomberg or the New York Times, I don't think that model is is the good one. And those that's what I thought we were mostly talking about because that you know that the journalist for the New York Times or you know the anchor. Yeah, that that's what I'm talking about. I, I think that applies to the journalist oh. in the New York Times. Okay, yeah, I, I don't I don't think so. I think that applies to like what you're describing sounds sort of like the you know like the Bernie Bros or like you know you know the dirtbag left you know that term. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think that that also applies to them as well. Well, those, but the, but I, I think that's I, fair. I, yeah, I see that as like a like a like a good explanation of like they really hate like you know the petty bourgeois like the the landlord who keeps asking them for the rent that they don't want to pay because they're just you know poor and miserable and they're they're you know they're still they'll, they'll accept all the wokeness stuff but they really focus on more on economic inequality and that angers them. I I don't think that's a good model for like 
you know, like, 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 uh, you know, a Harvard professor or like a, you know, an NGO worker or something like that. I think they all have like relatives, maybe cousins or distant cousins or whatever, who are like small town, like, you know, business owners or, or whatever, who work a normal IT job. And they probably see them at like Thanksgiving dinner or whatever. And I don't think they, I don't think they envy them. I think they, you know, they, they see them as sort of living a, um, a less rich and fulfilling life. Uh, the no, but that's the point. They don't envy them. They envy like the musks of the world. They envy like the hyper successful, right? So, so we can we can model this as some kind of threshold, right? You need to have like some large number of order of magnitudes above, let's say like three orders of magnitude uh, above in wealth or above in some metric of success, right? That that's that's the point, right? Like back in the day, right? You would have yeah, you would have all these university professors or whatever. They would still know people who might be like a bit smarter than. Right. But they would just most of them, at least, would not have the exposure to, you know, people who would make them obviated as well. Well, I mean, if you're just talking about the dominant political currents of our of our time, the the hatred that, you know, the sort of uh, distaste that, uh, the you know, the upper levels of the elite, they show towards, you know, the not Elon Musk now because he's associated with the right. But just like, say, your average obscure billionaire who's who's not that well known. Versus the hate that they have for you know racists or sexists or transphobes. I mean, there's no there's no comparison there. So I, I don't think it's you know the the, the sort of their main uh, you know it could be part of it, but I, I don't think it's their main driving force. Hmm, that, that, that's a good point, right? There there does seem to be a lot of you know basically punching down, right? I do think that that's true. Yeah. Although. Yeah, yeah punching that, that's, down, that's not necessarily punching down. Like if you're if you're like a white country club in the south, you know that's like you know I'll be all rich. It, it, yeah, it's punching down, also sort of punching up, like economically, but punching down maybe socially. And yeah, they hate those people too, probably more than they would hate the uh, redneck having the you know the wrong social views and the wrong class and the and being rich. Yeah, would be like the worst combination, I think. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Like, do they hate you know like the racist you know country clubs? If, if you control the racist, like a redneck. If you controlled the racism, if there were white rich people in the South who were just as racist as rednecks, um, yeah, I think they would hate the richer guy, the richer guys more. Hmm, is that true? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that does make sense. Although I guess if you get to that level, they they're kind of basically uh, close close to constant in their you know in their neuroticism. Uh, the reason why I think I place a big uh, emphasis on this kind of multi-layered, um, multi-layered envy or this multi-layered uh, distancing though, is because a lot of, a lot of the kind of like practical function of their, of their actions, right? This is more on the kind of bureaucracy front. You can see it in the COVID lockdowns. You can see it in you know, even civil rights law, I guess, although maybe that is more targeted. But but yeah, like mostly the people who end up paying the civil rights law, the people who are actually blackmailed by it are like the companies, right? Most of the kind of practical manifestation of this type of, uh, of this kind of Brahmin left is basically like the deprivation of opportunity. <laughs> and actually, this is most obvious in the climate example. We have... I have this wonderful quote from when Sam Uberio was on my podcast of like uh, European, European climate activism is, is just a rationalization for poverty. It's that's all it is. It's just the agenda is just poverty. It's just, we're going to inflict poverty and here is why poverty is a good thing. 
right? And, and they're like very explicit about this as well. I don't and buy, so I mean, you basically have that. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so you basically have the circumstance, right, where where there's like a lot of. It is the kind of like Nietzschean, you know, it is the kind of Nietzschean um, priestly class, right, where they want to inf- inflict deprivation upon upon more people. And they want to especially afflict, afflict deprivation on people who are much more successful than them. And I think that is manifest in a lot of Brahmin uh, no. left, and especially no, in the kind I, of like policy policy areas of Brahmin. No, left. no, I think I think you're I think you're sort of crazy. So I mean, they they like you know your typical American leftist likes Scandinavia, and they think Scandinavia is a material paradise, right? Um, it's it's not you know it, they're not mad at those white people. Um, if the white people are you know are sufficiently you know progressive enough and have the right uh, you know redistribution policies, but most importantly the right sexual attitudes and the right racial attitudes, um, they're completely fine with it. I mean they're completely you know fine with uh, you know I, I think they don't mind that like you know they want to impoverish everybody through some climate you know uh, policies. I don't think they like mind that that's like a byproduct because they're so blinded by the. Um, uh, the goal of you know the, the sort of the nature worship and sort of the uh, uh, the you know the virtue signaling of of the you know what environmentalism to a large extent is now, um, but you know you you have to like differentiate uh, consequences of uh, policies and you know maybe and maybe some of these things work different from different people so like maybe for like Greta uh, von Thunberg or whatever her name is like maybe it's maybe it is that maybe there is this nature worship this hatred of progress like you know I try to stick my theory to like I'm trying to explain the prototype you know American like the person who is just like you know wore a mask wore a mask in their profile like you know wanted, wants to ban disinformation like believed in believed in Russiagate um then supported Ukraine and, you know, I was worried about Trump and his threat to democracy, you know, just like, just like you, you think about like the median, you know, member of this, of this class and, you know, what's sort of driving them. That, that's what I'm trying to explain. And you have these things that, yeah, you could explain environmentalists. It's like a sort of a branch of this. Uh, you could explain, uh, you know, the, the people who are like the Bernie bros and the people who just focus on really focus on hating the rich. Um, you know, you have, you might have a sort of a envy thing, envy thing going on as like a, the dominant economic envy as a dominant force there um but yeah there's obviously you know you have to be very careful about who you're talking about in which context i don't necessarily think we're talking about different people though uh, maybe i do maybe i do tilt a little you bit more biden, you, think biden and greta, you think biden and greta are like the same as far as like their uh you know their climate policies or like no, wait, okay they, i don't think no 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 uh, uh, okay wait i don't think like you know, the average, the average, you know, resistance liberal voted for Biden, right? Those people who are like very active and online, those people are not voting for Biden. Uh, they're voting for like Elizabeth Warren or, you know, like Kamala Harris, right? Those people are not, yeah. those people are not Biden, Biden voters. I'm not talking about like the average Biden voter. Yeah, I'm yeah, talking right. about like, yeah. I, I do think I maybe I'm talking about like a little bit more of elite. I, I think I'm talking about like basically like a New York Times reporter. Um, maybe like the resistance liberal, the average resistance liberal is like one one step down from that. But I don't think it's like too far from that. Yeah. Uh, but I do think, I mean, I just think this better explains why they're blank slatists, why they have their kind of, the kind of sexual beliefs that they have, right? Why they ha- Why they are so like afraid of passing like basic judgment. Like committing to things, like saying, like, well, what's, the, what's the theory? 
the the theory is that they're just envy and they're that they're just envious of people who are uh, more successful to, than them and people who are basically able to uh, basically able to commit to something and then actually do it right. So this is on the racial front. This is like very clear, right? Who are the people who they hate most, right? It's like successful whites and Asians. Like that, this is like the entire, this is like the entire affirmative action regime, right? Is literally just denying that some races can be more successful than others. But they're doing that on behalf of somebody else. Your average resistance mom is not like, you know, trapped in poverty and like, you know, can't stay out of the criminal justice system. So if you're saying it's envy, that they're- right, it's That's like exactly poverty. the point, right? So if, if you're, if you're jealous of someone- right then the point is that you want to like take their resources and make them your own right and you want to say like all right i deserve these resources because i can reasonably argue that i'm better than them and deserve the resources more if you are envious you just want to deprive them of their resources you don't care if you get them in fact it's better if you say that it's we're we're giving this to these other people right it's 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 more just it's just more socially useful that way right you can you can manipulate more people that way but the end goal is not to like accumulate resources for yourself the end goal is to like reject the idea that some people are better than others yeah i mean so uh, you know we're, we're just going back to okay so yeah this is the, you know we're talking about sort of the you know the average resistance person or the average you know online liberal who I, I agree with you you seem to agree that that's the important person and Biden ended up being you know the Democratic nominee but like you know the Biden stands are not the uh, are not the driving force in the in the culture war to the extent that they they exist you're right uh, and so yeah he, he's stipulating that like even Elizabeth Warren voter not the not the Biden voter. I, you know, take them as like the median of like the elite. It was like the Elizabeth Warren lady. I think that's, that's, that's probably fair. Um, you know, how prominent, you know, like how prominent, um, you know, I think they, they, I think they, I think part of Elizabeth Warren was that she's, she's a woman and like the white, you know, the white liberal woman is like the modal representation of this class. And the, this, the white modal woman who cares about, um, representation. Right. So I think that was, that was a lot of the charm of, of Warren. Um, and Warren was like a far leftist on, you know, every, every cultural issue. And I guess the question is, uh, is it, is it right to say that our disagreement depends on how important Warren's, uh, social views and, um, her identity versus her, um, economic views was to the support of these, this, you know, prototypical member of this class that we're talking about? I think you're interpreting me saying like people want to deprive others of resources as like purely economic. I don't think that's the case. I think they want to deprive them of like both, uh, both like actual resources in the case of someone like Musk, but also status. Right. I, I think that like the general, okay, here is like my general model of societies is, and, and this is like kind of like pretty Asian, but it's like, there are societies where you're more or less honest about individual differences. And to me, that is very important. And basically there, there's a, there's a poll between people who want to make societies more honest about individual differences and less honest about individual differences. And the primary motivator here is the reason is right. When you're more honest about individual differences and let's say like individual differences in like competence or let's say like intelligence uh, as one manifestation of competence, right? Then you are more then you're weighing things basically more towards production, more towards the ability to actually do things and less towards like social climate. 
And these people are basically, you know, they're like, their entire life is social climbing. And of course, they're oriented basically towards the system that prefers social climbing. And that can, that can exist in the kind of economic realm, that can obviously exist in the social realm, right? But it's much less important whether that manifests, you know, I mean, in practice, in practice, it's probably better that it manifests in wokeness rather than, you know, like wealth taxes or like price caps, right? That, that would just destroy the country much faster. But in terms of like, in terms of like the correctness of the model, I don't think, I think the model is agnostic to whether that applies in an economic sense or in a status sense. Okay. So we, I guess we have something of a similarity. <clears throat> in views um in the sense that yeah i think definitely like our our models of kind of political psychology are like much closer to each other's than like you know 99 percent of of people even 99 percent of people who like think about this probably okay so maybe maybe i'm just arguing with you because i'm misinterpreting too much as uh, focusing on uh uh economic you know an obsession with economic redistribution or being envious of the rich when you're, you know, you're not saying that that's sort of necessarily what it's about. It's about these people who have, you know, this status and they want to, uh, you know, they want to take it away. You know, a lot of it, <clears throat> you know, I think if you're going to... I do like, think that they are envious of the rich because the rich get status. But I don't think they yeah, necessarily uh, approach that by, like, trying to trying to take away their wealth. Although they sometimes yeah. do that. Although maybe, you know, I would probably disagree with you in a sense that I, I think they don't think like, you know... Uh, a small business owner in the middle of nowhere um, is higher status than them. I think they're secure enough, you know, like a, a woman who works for the federal government and who's a resistance obsessive in, you know, Washington, D.C. I don't think she sees herself as competition with, uh, you know, a, a KFC uh, uh, manager in, uh, in uh, you know, Missouri or something. I, I, yeah, I, I, I think that they, you know, I, I don't think they, they see themselves that uh that way, um, you know, part of and you know something that's interesting that's like sort of maybe tangential, but is you know interesting in like thinking about ultimate causation here, is that people seek out, you know, people seek out, uh, you know, the systems that sort of you know uh, that they they want to play the status games that they're capable of winning. So like, you know, like you know, it's like high school where like you know there's these the athletes favor, you know, athletic prowess, the nerds, uh, you know, the nerds uh, favor, uh, uh, you know, they build status based on who's uh, smarter, uh, you know, the pretty girls based on attractiveness. And so you have, you know, you have like sort of these goths and these misfits, misfits. And maybe today that's like sort of what the LGBT sort of the uh, rainbow flag, everything falls under that. Um, and it's sort of like this, you know, in the, in the rest of life, if you're like a guy with high testosterone um, and say uh, in your white male, so you don't get any victim status or anything um, and you're moderate or low IQ or even slightly above average IQ. I mean, you're not going to get a, uh, you know, a, uh, you're not going to become a lawyer or, uh, you know, a high paid attorney or anything. Um, you know, you're going to adopt the value system that's going to, you know, that's going to, uh, that's going to flatter you and say, you know, the guy who, the common man who works hard, who has a strong back, who, you know, makes a honest day's you know, paycheck and doesn't think too much about, you know, big issues, which you're not, you're not, you know, uh, you're not prone or capable of thinking about anyway. And, and you know, you're still going to adopt that value system. And if you're like a woman, um, who is, uh, you know, neurotic to, to argue said all women are, but let's say above average, um, in neuroticism. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, let's say, 
you're above average. You're you're well, well above average at intelligence. You know, one twenty. I mean, one twenty five. Most women are not. You know, past that. Um, and uh, you, but you're good. What you're good at, and you know, this is another you know typically fem- female trait is you're good at um you're good at reading social cues, right? You're very good at understanding what's high status, what's low status, what's sort of you know moral. You might even say you're very empathetic. Yes, but sorry, exactly. continue. For you, you're like modern liberalism in 2022 is like you know you it's perfectly designed for you because you did design it. I mean that's the, that's sort of that's sort of the driving force behind you know uh, you know elite liberalism in, in this country. So yes, you like things like arbitrary credentials, you know, the, the, you know, the, which thing, which anyone with like your, you know, your slightly above average intelligence uh, could achieve, you know, you probably don't like, you know, uh, uh, businesses in which, you know, there's objective, you know, there's like SpaceX, like a way to get, you know, you, you have to get the thing, the rocket into space and you got to make it land in the ocean. That that's something you probably are not very good at. You, you know, you like, you like sort of HR, you like government regulations, you like like speech codes and hypersensitivity in the culture. <laughs> you did you dislike Trump, you dislike unpredictability and you dislike crudeness in, in public life. Um and yeah, I mean this is this is a sort of a different theory because we're going one step back in like the causal change, right? We're we're getting we're chain, we're going to like ultimate causation of like why people are the way they are, why they have values, what I think before that we were talking about sort of proximate, but you know, it's just interesting to sort right. of Think about where in the causal chain you are. Yeah, so why I think envy is so high up in the causal chain is that it's sort of it's sort of a kind of fundamental human uh, human both behavior and like impulse, right? You know this book um, Hierarchy in the Forest by I think Christopher Christopher Bohm. Uh, mm-hmm. Rob Henderson actually recommended this to me. Um, but it basically talks about, you know, like most crime in kind of, and, and, you know, I have some skepticism on, on any, on like any individual study or article or even book about, about, you know, hunter gatherers, but this seems to, this seems not to conflict with anything else that I've read, uh, he basically makes the point that, like, most prehistoric crime was, like, egalitarian crime, right? It was, like, you know, it was the strongest, you know, a bunch of chimps go and they, like, kill the strongest chimp, right? And so in order for the strongest chimp not to die, uh, he has to, like, be somewhat egalitarian, right? And so this kind of, this kind of impulse, and it's, like, not necessarily true that that, that chimp is going to be, you know taking more value than he is actually providing, right? That's not necessarily true. And I think, especially with humans, that's not necessarily true, right? This this kind of envy is a kind of, and it's like, it's like pretty measurable, right? It, it's pretty measurable malicious envy in a lot of these psychology studies. To, to the extent that they replicate, I think like malicious envy as a predictor of various political pol- beliefs, uh, I've definitely seen that quite a few times consistently at around like 0.2, 0.3. Right. And basically I think that it's, it's, it's just a reasonable root explanation. Like, you know, we can, we can go through like other, I actually, I just don't, maybe I should have asked this first, but I just don't know what your kind of root cause for, for this is. I'm wondering, I'm wondering maybe we're describing something similar in different words or whether we have really. Yeah, certainly very similar. Or the, yeah, uh, the, did, the did you ever listen thing. to the Shreve Rushowitz episode? The who? 
Okay, so he's a he's a COVID forecaster, uh, libertarian guy. Uh, he is very um, he he very he writes a lot about the pandemic, and he has this frame called like immoral mazes, which is like ninety nine point nine percent closer to me to how I think about institutions, especially like institutions during the pandemic, than basically anyone else. And I got and I got him on the podcast. And we spent, we spent like an hour, an hour and a half just like working through exactly the details. And like we had a big debate about like how important selection effects are versus incentives. And, you know, th- this is the stuff that I do on this podcast. So I don't think, I think that maybe you, you, you have like a correct assessment of how much or how little we disagree. But I nonetheless think that those disagreements are very important. Okay, you're trying to you're trying to get it. To, okay, so help me then. Um, yeah, and I love this. I like this podcast. I've listened to a lot of them. Um, and you know, I this is this gets into you. You do a lot of preparation. I have my own podcast. I don't do nearly as much preparation as you, but it allows you to really <laughs> it, it really allows you to sort of drill deep and uh, and I appreciate that. Not every episode. I'm not gonna you know I have to be interested in the person, but you know what I am. What I yeah, what don't I. Worry. <laughs> I do, I do, you know, listen often to the, to the very end. Um, so then, yeah. Okay. So I get all that. So help me understand what, like your interpretation of sort of where are, where are our differences, the 0.1% or the 1% that we disagree on. Yeah. So I really see, I mean, my framework of this is the tripartite war, right? You have basically three, roughly three skill sets corresponding roughly to, uh, to libertarians, progressives and everyone else, either economic. Uh, economic left or like uh, the right wing, which is yeah. uh, optimization, social climbing, and and instinct. Right. So, what's the primary way that you make decisions? Some people primarily make decisions by like optimization. Most people are all of this are like libertarians, but you know, there's some like effective altruists there. You know, state capacity libertarians. Do they really count as libertarians? I don't know. I, I think a lot of the new right people are like this as well. Um, and, you know, a lot of autists, <laughs> but also, you know, people with skills that are very successful in this day and age, right? Uh, um, software, investing, natural sciences, VC, right? So, so th- these are skills that are very, very uh, uh, rewarded nowadays, right? Very, very profitable nowadays. And then social climbing, this has always been a kind of very big factor. Uh, I mean, like if you take... Christopher Bohm, like literally since, you know, uh, the dawn of humanity or before the dawn of humanity, right? In chimps. Uh, and then the way most Wait, people do things are like are related, these, are these right? Most people are, these, are not. Are these different axes you're talking about? I just want to get clear as I'm following along. Is these different axes or are they like, are you trying to say there's uh, similar or overlapping or what? Would yeah, you say yeah. so these, these are all different traits that people can have, but like the right. question is which one of them are like dominant, Right. Like, like when you make a decision, you, you can have like various factors play into it, right? But in general, right, which one of these are you closer towards? And, and yeah, that can be like a little shaky. But uh, so it's a spectrum from optimization, applied, optimization yeah, yeah, yeah. to climbing, optimization, status, and uh, and reaction, or or like instinct. Instinct is probably better because you can uh, react in like whatever way, right? Uh. Where's optimization? So I think like most people, sorry. So where's, uh, so I'm sorry, we want to get the exact, so we're, we don't have any, any uh, danger of uh, misunderstanding each other. So are you saying there's a optimization uh, access and there's a climbing uh, versus instinct access? Are these different things? Or are these sort of three? Yeah, the, most, the easiest way to think of this is just as like skills, basically. 
Okay, right? so there's three steps. So yeah, it's gonna be to... like, yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah, you have you know you have some skills that are like optimization that are just like taking uh, a plus b or like taking like two factors a and b and saying like how can I get like the most of c right? Um, you have you have basically like or like this is it's kind of weird because I think like this is kind of something that I think is like very notable is that there hasn't been enough incentive for these two things to be really seen as separate, right? Before they're just seen as like part of the same aristocracy, right? Um, Like Pareto would just describe both of these as like combinations, right? And I don't think that he sees like a, a large amount of difference between the two. Although I think like to most people, to like most people today, like they can, they're, they're very clear in telling the difference between like a software engineer and, you know, like an NY, a New York Times reporter, right? Like yeah. th- those are very clearly identified kind of like character types nowadays, right? Yeah. And, and that in and of itself is interesting. But the main payoff to this is that you have this like layered reaction, Right. So you have this is actually why I wanted to get like from the beginning, I really wanted to get Amy Chua on this podcast. I've still not I've still not succeeded in doing that. <laughs> but it's my main takeaway from her book. Yeah. My main takeaway from her book, right? World uh not World on Fire, although World on Fire as well, but the other uh it's similar similar idea where she talks about, you know, basically like populist reactions to markets, right? The, the reaction to that was like, you know, this is this is the most solid case that I've read that the Dems are the real racists, <laughs> and you know the the reason the reason why that is right is that she basically describes this historical pattern throughout Asia and throughout uh, many areas of the world before Asia, right, including uh, including uh, in Russia and Germany, uh, where of course Jews were successful, right, uh, where racism is primarily like an envious act. Right, racism, like historically, is primarily something that is done by basically people with power against, or like people with like military power, basically people with like you know, uh, just just the numbers uh, versus people with like wealth. Right, that's the primary. That's like the primary justification for it. That's the primary you know activation of racism. And, is it or is it just is it just one? I mean, is that just one? You know, groups can uh, be racist against those beneath them. They could be racist about equal, you know, socioeconomic status. You would find examples of all this stuff. So I don't know if that's necessarily the – we could break that down as the cause or the, you know, the the sort of definition of what racism is. Yeah, I think that I think that there are definitely, you know, there are definitely examples of all of them happening, right? But in terms of, like, basically what we most kind of, like, emotionally affiliate with racism – I think it actually is that, right? Like, if you think of Nazism, right? Or, like, the most salient point to me was, like, the examples in Asia. Because obviously, obviously, I'm more, you know, that, that's more, like, culturally relevant to me than, like, most people. But I, I think that, like, really explaining these things as, like, basically blood feuds, as, like, people blaming, like, I'm blaming exogenous factors for endogenous problems, I think that is, like, certainly the vast majority of cases of racism. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think not, not necessarily all of them, but I think it is the primary cause. Yeah. I, you know, I don't... Yeah. 
uh, I don't, yeah, I don't think the envy thing is, <clears throat> you know, I don't think the envy thing is, uh, uh, there's nothing to it. So yes, when you combine it, you know, you combine something of envy with, uh, you know, di- uh, differences in, uh, phenotype or, or culture, like it makes sense. That would be, uh, that would be an explosive combination. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, what you're trying, are you trying to, you sort of, uh, you know, are you trying, you know, I, I'm sort of, uh, I'm confused of sort of where we are when we're talking about this, you know, these Chinese Actually, maybe the about. biggest difference is this, right? You, in your psychological theory of the cultural post, you say like everyone agrees on the hierarchy, right? But I actually really much don't agree oh. with the hierarchy. Okay, yeah, good. I, like I think you. that most, a lot of social progressivism is kind of like reaction to like tech billionaires. Okay, well, that's an interesting case because the tech billion, like, okay, MAGA versus New York Times. I don't think anyone. I don't think anyone disagrees. I think you're seeing yeah. tension with New York Times versus big tech. You're right because a lot of the things that you know this meritocratic elite supposedly favors, like openness to experience, intelligence, uh, competence. You know, they're still meritocratic to a certain extent, even though they have the wokeness. Uh, MAGA doesn't have that even, you know, and even like the idealism, like a lot of these tech people are very idealistic. So, you know, just having idealistic values in the first place, I think, uh, to, to the, uh, broad and left, I think gives you some kind of status. Um, and so you're, 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 uh, you know, you're right there that I think that that's, there's a tension there. And this is sort of, this is the next war. You know, I, I, this is, I'm going to write that, I'm going to write an essay that's going to maybe touch on this. Um, like MAGA versus the um, the liberal elite, that was sort of season one or season two since we've become like an absurd reality show. Uh, season, <laughs> two, season three, season four is MAGA is going to be stepped. The, the big man himself is going away. Trump is a character who's killed off, you know, it's at the end of season two. Um, and then, yes, it's it's Musk, you know, it's, it's Andreessen, it, it, it's Teal. This is, these are the alternatives. And they are, you know, they thought that the, the MAGA people were the real threat. They were never, they were never the real threat. They didn't have the brains. They didn't have the organization. They didn't have the control of resources. They didn't have the idealism. The idealism is, is very important. You don't beat idealism with uh, self-interest or just with uh, instinct or just by, you know, watching TV. Um, you beat it with idealism plus resources plus competence. And that's, I think, that that's, I sort of, I think the uh, what we might be moving into in sort of the next chapter of our po- political and culture war. Yeah, is that why? Is that why there are all these hit pieces on Yarvin now? I think I think so. I think Yarvin is seen as you know to the extent that this class has an intellectual representative. Um, yeah, I think that describes the fascination. You know, there was a little bit of this in the 2016 with like, 2015 with like the alternative, right? I don't know if you were paying attention at the time, but like how obsessed they were with Richard Spencer. Do you, do you remember this? Yeah. Yeah. And he's not, I, I do like vaguely remember it, but I didn't attribute a lot more than, you know, they, they like portraying Republicans as racists. No, right? but the, that's but mainly with, like, him, with him specifically, there was an obsession um, in the, like, he's not as successful as Elon Musk, but the fact that he was well-spoken, he was good-looking, uh, he was intelligent. Um, there was a sort of fascination for this, like, you know, idealistic and, you know, the, what he represented that, like, this could be, this could be something else. This scares us. This is different. And, you know, that was the, you know, the, the alt-right, like 1.0, that was, that was crushed after the, uh, uh, social, basically social media censorship and after Charlottesville. Um, but, you know, there, there was an element of that. That's the fascination. Like they, they treat MAGA 
you know, when they, when they do hit pieces on MAGA, it's, it's created completely different from like Richard Spencer in 2015, or, um, they would do a, like towards Elon Musk or somebody like that today. It's like, yeah, they're, we're the morally good people. They're the morally bad people, but there is a sense that, okay, they are competitors for status. And, you know, it's not just that. It's also like, they're just more Garvin. Anyone with ideas is more inherently interesting to them than, you know, some uh, backwoods, you know, preacher who's, you know, praying then saying, you know, Donald Trump is uh, was sent here by the Lord to strike our enemies. That's like not intellectual. That's like anthropologically interesting to them. Like a person like that could never be intellectually interesting to them or like, a, you know, a right wing, you know, consistent committed racist or a social Darwinist or a, or a libertarian or some forms of libertarian. That can That can actually be interesting to them. So that's part of the difference in coverage, too. Right. Actually, I heard you t- when you were on your podcast with uh, Aaron Sibarium, you're talking about, I think, uh, you're talking about how there was some kind of like weird obsession with, with the new right, right? With with the kind of uh, Yarvin or with Teal. I, I don't think like he went anywhere with that question, but like, why do you think that is? Uh, I, you know, like, I why do you that... think there's that, that obsession? Yeah. I mean, I think I just, I just sort of, uh, uh, you know, I told you this is this is this is the rival. I mean, this is the this okay. is okay. this sort of ideology. Which I'm gonna write this. I'm gonna maybe write this essay. Maybe it'll be out by the time uh, uh, this podcast comes out. If not, you know, I'll preview it for people who haven't read it, or they could you could put it in the show links uh, if it, if it's out by then. Um, yeah, I, I think that I think that this is sort of this is a um, you know they're they're interesting just because people who are intellectual. You know, there's a part of them that senses. You know, they look at MAGA and they they see like your typical like you Mike Huckabee or something. They don't, you know, there's no part of them that admires what Mike Huckabee can do, right? Mike Huckabee, I just saw he had a show on Newsmax. He was, you know, this Arkansas preacher became governor of Arkansas. Um, you know, it's like he's like an enemy because he is like, you know, he's from a different class and he has different values and he's a political enemy. Um, but there's no fascination with Mike Huckabee. Um, you know, uh, but like Peter Keel or Elon Musk, I mean, first of all, they have some well, first of all, just purely IQ. Their IQs are higher than the journalists. These people are, you know, are used to, you know, they're, they, you know, they, they don't like to admit that their intelligence is part of what makes the, them th- think that they're better than other people, but it is part of it. Um, and so they do that. And then the other part is they're moral and they still feel morally superior to those people. Oh, they're the ones who, you know, take the, uh, threat of, uh, misinformation and, uh, you know, dead naming and misgendering. They, they're the people who take that seriously enough. Right. So they are, you know, they're, they're, they're still the morally, you know, righteous ones, but they do see an intellectual enemy and an intellectual enemy and an idealistic, you know, enemy. And that potentially, you know, is, you know, is a threat to them. So you do see this fascination and it's a different kind of fascination. And actually, you know, I'm, I've been talking like, you know, the, like they're going to have like an immune reaction, uh, to, like if there's if this you know right wing sort of rationalist sort of tech you know fusionism that I'm you know, that I'm sort of talking about or conjuring into being if that takes off like a you know their antibodies might not actually be as strong um, to that as it is to MAGA because there is a part of them that sees themselves you know in the people who are uh, idealistic and who are who are successful and you know the, their coalition is like very people who are very, very uh, all together and people who are not very all together. And, you know, they could lose, they could lose a lot of them. And, um, you know, like, it's like, 
you, you maybe what you're called maybe that's what you're calling envy and then there's like the way maybe that's the way they look at the tech people they look at you know like uh the maga people with disgust and the disgust seems to be a big motivator like this the sneering this looking down if you can't do that and you know you can't do that to elon musk um you know they're they you know the you know, some of that energy that goes towards hating trump you know is not gonna put it this way i think that if like your typical resistance woman i think if she was hit on by trump uh, at like a party, she was cornered by him, and he started like you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, putting his uh, fingers on her neck and like slowly moving them. I think they would slap him, or I think they would run. I think they would scream. If Elon Musk did that, even if there was this, this woman right now is on Twitter hating Elon Musk, I think she would. Uh, I think she'd go with him. Um, and I think that's sort of, <laughs> sort of a dynamic here that's different. Okay, I'm definitely, I'm definitely putting that as a clip. Okay. Definitely going to be a clip. Yeah. This is wonderful. This is wonderful. Uh, that's interesting. That attraction, that's something that I need to think about. Have you ever read uh, Eric Hoffer's The True Believer? Uh, I've read, I read another different Eric Hoffer book a long time ago, uh, but I don't think I read that one. Right. So, so the point of The True Believer is basically detailing the things that drive a lot of social movements. And he points out that the people who participate in social movements are typically, you know, like wealthy, but also paranoid, right? Or like, they're like, they're reasonably, and they're reasonably wealthy enough, you know, like, once again, upper middle class, but there's some, there's some like thing that they're afraid of, right? And to me, like, that tension, that tension existing, uh, typically is, is, is quite rare throughout history. And especially at the kind of, you know, like New York Times, uh, the, the kind of Brahmin left level, right? But this goes back to like the communications technology thing, right? You know, being able to see someone like Elon Musk on TV, right? I don't think even, even for like New York Times reporters who you might expect, you know, they're, they're supposed to be covering these types of people, right? Like how many of them exactly were, you know, were exposed to like the specific, like detailed, like personal lives and thoughts of like Andrew Carnegie, right? Like, like how much basically, you know, personal exposure, what, uh, what Rene, uh, or not, not Rene Girard, what, uh, Luke Burgess paraphrasing Girard calls like, uh, fresh manistan, right? Calls like basically like feeling like you're in contest with someone for attention in your own, in your own social circle, right? In, in, in the, in your own kind of like, vague milieu of society i think that that was not necessarily a feeling that was you know that was nearly as present and that that drives a lot of this kind of reaction right maybe i i don't see i think this is the primary difference actually and it, and it goes towards basically the last part that i want to talk about is basically like analysis of how uh conservatives can succeed or at least do better in the future but i really don't see you know i think like I had a reply to one of your tweets and I think I mentioned something similar to Scott Greer as well. You know, like I think I said something like the difference between a left libertarian and a right libertarian is whether you think pe pe people who uh, think that uh, racial differences are caused primarily by racism are as retarded as people who think the 2020 election was stolen. And to me, I think that that's true. Like, I think that those people are like, I think that the first is equally, if not more retarded than the second. Uh, not like, not in terms of, you know, like how well could they do on like an SAT, 
But in terms of like how stupid the idea is and how basically like how how poor your reasoning would have to be in order to believe something like that. Well, so what's what's the so how does that get to our our difference? Yeah, so so the main point is that I don't see I don't see this kind of like Brahmin left as any kind of like even in the current even in the current scenario, I don't see their their posture or like the thing that motivates them as like primarily punching down, right? I think that even when they're punching down, they're punching down in like they're punching down in order to show that they're they're different from the people who are below them, right? They they don't primarily see you know like the white appellation as like their enemy. They see, you know, they see the difference that exists. They see the chasm that exists between them and Elon Musk. And in order for them to basically avoid like falling down that social chasm, they have to punch down as hard as they can. That's what I see as their primary hmm. motivation. Okay. So the MAGA is, so maybe it's like Elon Musk goes on Twitter and like all these like, you know, stupid reply guys. Actually, like, this might be a good way to, to put it to you. Right. So this is, I think, my favorite, my favorite Richard Hanania tweet. And there have been many, many bangers. Right. So my favorite Richard Hanania tweet is there's not a possible, it's something like this. There's not a problem with imposter syndrome. There's a problem with imposters. Many of these people are just imposters. Oh, I don't think think that's true. But yeah, I remember the tweet. Yeah. So there are all of these people who basically, you know, their position is in due to a large part, if not fully due to, you know, social climbing. And they realize that there's this alternative. Uh, and quite frankly, you know, there's this alternative hierarchy that quite frankly has a lot to offer, yeah. right? That has a lot to offer people and they can feel their status slipping away. Do you think that, Hmm. So do you think that deep down they see sort of the values of the optimizers or the shape rotators or whatever we're calling this sort of <laughs> these, uh, uh, you know, these rivals that they see that they're like inherently more appealing or are they fully confident that like in their own sort of moral status and the fact that like even if Elon Musk can, you know, go to Mars or whatever, like his ideal world would be so full of disinformation that we would be like all eating each other. And, you know, we just all, you know, society would collapse. I mean, do you think it's like the, for the former or it's like the latter? It's like they, they still deep down uh, have a confidence in their own superiority because I think they do. I think they they do have that confidence. I don't think they're, they're anxiety that like, you know, the tech people are just going to prove superior to them in every way. I think that there's, there's certainly a kind of anxiety of talking about racial differences, right? I think that, I mean, that, that might be like the area where it's most obvious, but okay, what about more generally, right? Do I think that if, like, there's obviously also areas where they don't think that this is true, right? I mean, they, I think they definitely want to ban more Stop the Steal people, but, you know, like, do they think that, do they think that if they didn't ban Stop the Steal people that suddenly everyone, you know, like, a hundred, like, 80% of the country would believe in stop the steal. I don't think they think that. Right. Um, I think they think it would have less power, you know, maybe like, you know, there would be uh, uh you know, you could poll people and it'd be the same, but like they couldn't organize like, you know, protests or organize to steal the election or, or whatever. Right. So I think there is like a rationality and coherence to, to the censorship. Yeah. 
I don't think any of them think, or I don't think very many of them think like Matt Iglesias that banning banning Trump from Twitter was mostly good for Republicans. Um, Yeah. uh, Hmm. So do they? Okay. Do they think that? I mean, the free speech absolutist argument is kind of true here, right? I do think there is a kind of precarity when they try to ban. I, I do think they feel like they'll lose the arguments. And now, do they feel like they'll lose the argument because basically, you know, people are, are like yeah, too so, people are like so boobs, just, yeah. or do they think they'll lose the argument because they're just wrong? Yeah. Um, and so, like, yeah, they, to they, an extent, they, like, no one, you have to be pretty, you know, evil to believe that you know I'm wrong about something and I'm going to continue arguing about it, right? So, are those two things really distinguishable in most people's minds? Yeah, you know, so like, so you look at like, you know, they want to like, you know, sometimes I'll hear anti-vax people and they'll be like, oh, they want to ban criticism of the vaccine shows you there's something to criticism. Like, no, it's just like, you know, you're, it's like, oh, they want to ban child molestation. Well, you know, the conservatives now think that liberals like pedophilia, but you know, they're, they're obviously crazy. It's like, no, sometimes they want to ban you because they just think you're wrong and you're dangerous. So I don't think if we take that, like, if we look at that example, like, I don't think they think that anti-vaxxers are going to win the argument. They think they're just wrong and dangerous. So I, I don't know why we can't, just because me and you know that vaccines are good and their views on race and gender are, are, are stupid. Um, me and you are smart enough to, to you know, to keep all those ideas in our head. Um, to them, I, I think they must, I think they believe the same thing. You know, I think they believe that, you know, that uh, race science is discredited. Uh, gender identity is like, you know, real, uh, you know, real thing. Um yeah, I think they, I think they do mostly don't believe they're gonna, maybe there's, a, maybe with the trans stuff, maybe doubt creeps in just because it's so absurd. It's also, you know, I wrote an article about this. It's like not even like an empirical belief. It's like such a metaphysical belief, right? That you can't challenge my gender identity. There's no like scientific claim actually at the root of that. So maybe with that, like some doubt creeps in and maybe it's just like, oh my goodness, the, the trans are gonna all, all, you know, commit mass suicide if, you know, if we, uh, let people speak freely. So maybe on that issue, but yeah, I think they, I think they think they're right. I mean, I think that they, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have much doubt about that. And I think you're right when you, in your instinct, when you say, uh, most people don't, uh, think in terms of, I'm going to lose the argument. So I'm going to shut people. No, you want to, you know, it's not like Putin, like shuts down debate because he thinks he'll lose. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe or because he thinks he's wrong. I think he probably thinks he's right. Um, but you know, maybe the, you know, the Americans will, will, uh, fund some NGO or some liberal or some charismatic guy who will, uh, deceive the people. And I think that's, you know, that's coherent. I think that's what, uh, a lot of people who censor believe. Right, right. Yeah. Hmm. In a way, this is like not really falsifiable, right? Because I agree with you. Like, I think most people are like self-justified. Most people like do not think that they're, wrong about things and continue to believe those things right so in in terms of like motivation in terms of like explicit and explicit motivation i think that's basically that's basically right but in terms of like practical motivation you know like what gets them out of bed in the morning i don't know like you could you could be much more enthusiastic like or like not you as an as in you, but like someone like that could be much more enthusiastic about, you know, like, you know, they could be like David Shore. They could be, you know, very enthusiastic about what they think are the benefits of like Medicare expansion. Right. But they're not like that. They're attracted to, to certain issues 
that basically, you know, that basically signal their status, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, you know, is it, yeah, is it false? Now, like, you know, it's very interesting. Like Brian Kaplan in the myth of the rational voter, uh, he talks about, uh, I think you probably, you've probably read it, right? Yeah. Uh, so he talks so about for the audience. He, you want to okay, go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, the book is called "The Myth of the Rational Voter" by Brian Kaplan, but I just want to talk about this one, you know, part of the book uh, where he talks about um, the Soviet Union, if you remember this, and uh, their, uh, you know, their views on like psychoism, um, and they would promote yes, you know yes, long yes. theories of evolution. All these people start, but then when it came to self, you know, uh, they had what Brian calls standby rationality. <clears throat> so when it came to uh, the nuclear program, where it was like, you know, survival of the regime, then they listened to the scientists. And so the idea is, like, did Stalin actually believe in Lysenkoism? And I think the model of that Brian portrays, puts forth in that book is basically right. Like, in a sense, yes, Stalin believed in Lysenkoism. If you put a gun to his head... Um, at the moment and said, you know, is, you know, we're going to have a experiment and we're going to see whether like psychoism or Darwinism is true. I think he would have been more, he would have put more thought or put more effort into finding the correct view. And probably this is a good model for that, like that they, you know, they, they believe in the moment that trans women are women. Uh, you know, for, I don't like using that example again because the trans issue is so different or weird or, but that there are, you know, personality differences between men and women. They believe that in the moment. And they believe they believe it to them subjectively. It feels as strongly as they feel as strongly as you or I believe in you know anything we believe. Um, but you put a gun to their head, and they actually you know their lives depended on it. Um, I do think the standby rationality would come out. So it's like yeah, it's like sort of a complicated question. What uh, uh, you know what we what we mean when we say somebody believes in something? Yeah. I'm not sure if you've ever had this experience. Actually, Peter Bogosian talks a lot about this, where he talks about like basically talking one on one with uh, Peter Bogosian. He's a kind of like IDW oh, yeah. person. Know him, yeah. But he he talks about uh, basically you know talking one on one to uh, to someone who's pretty far left, especially far left socially, and basically being able to convince them to moderate, and then they go back to their friend circle, and then just like all disappears, mm. right? I, I really do think like there are a lot of people who basically don't have beliefs like or who have like very few beliefs and most of their expressed beliefs are not real beliefs right who basically this has also happened to me like personally and like i've happened like this is such a surreal experience every time it happens but i'll have you know like pretty crazy crazily left-wing people and i'll invite them to like these like small parties like i don't know like 10 people who i host right and most of my friend group is you know pretty based and the, by the end of the night, you know, they'll be saying some pretty based stuff. And then I'll ask them about it, like, the, the next day uh, when they're, like, with... And, and like, there's no, no, like, alcohol or something, right? It's not, it's not like that. But, you know, I'll ask them about it, you know, like, a week later. And they'll basically have, like, an out-of-body experience. Or they'll, they'll like, pretend that they, like, never... Or, like, not just pretend, they'll, but, but I think, like, they genuinely believe, like, oh, I never, you know, I never said something like that. I, I'm, like, genuinely convinced at this point, like, by, like, the number of times this has happened and, you know, by corresponding studies, I think uh, the book um, Public Truths, Private Lies as well by Timur Kuran uh, documents something similar to this, right? But I'm convinced that, like, a lot of people just, like, literally do not have beliefs they do not have like a model of the world 
they just have, you know, they're just basically, you know, Skinner boxes or they have like, they have like conditioning basically. Skinner box isn't the right thing, but they have like conditioning to just like say, say whatever is convenient. And it's not like they're like Machiavellian. It's not like I would actually respect that more if someone was like, I'm going to tactically say something, you know, that is, that is good in this moment. Like maybe like Sam Bankman Fried does that. But I think like a lot of people, they just have basically like a Pavlovian conditioning. That's why I'm looking for like Pavlovian conditioning to like say whatever is convenient. And they're just like, like the idea of a belief is just like completely foreign to them. I think you are right. And I think we are, um, yeah, I think we're, you know, almost everyone who really cares about ideas, like, you know, we, <clears throat> is like autistic at some level. Um, and like people <laughs> really care about ideas are, uh, you know, I think me and you are at the, you know, tail end of, of it. We're not even like most normal people who think a lot about politics. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, 90, you know, 95% of people, the bottom 95% of, you know, interest in ideas. Uh, I think that's a, that's a correct, I think that's a mostly correct model. I mean, they do have some sacred values. If you tell, you know, an evangelical Christian, uh, uh, you know, they're gonna, you know, they could change their gender, or their children's gonna change. Uh, yeah, I think that there's that. There's part of, there's that. There's some subset of like taboos or like things they believe in deeply. Uh, but beyond that, yeah, I think your, I think your model is, yeah, genuinely correct. So, yeah, I mean, so th- this is like why it's like, you know, debates over like whether people really believe in X or really believe in Y. It's so frustrating to me because, yeah, again, like, what does it mean to believe in things? And actually, you mentioned Timur Kuran's book and a lot of people recommend it. And I actually didn't, do not like th- that book because its model of people really? actually assumes they do have beliefs. It's like they, you know, oh, they, right. Yeah. It's like they're assuming, like you know, everyone is always sort of has the you know, uh, as I said, and like all their all it depends on is like how safe it is, or like how many other people, or like how excluded they'll be, whether they'll speak out or not. It's not like you know, for where well, me and you are imagining a sort of dynamic system where like everyone sort of believes, but like at the same time doesn't believe um, irrational things. Uh, and you know, it, it can change overnight. So yeah, it's actually a lot of people say Quran's book, but yeah, I think it's worth noting that, you know, I, d- I really disagree with its sort of model of the world. Yeah. I mean, a lot of psychology is like this, right? I actually talked with Rob about this. Um, like Jonathan Haidt will go, or like, actually like the best example of this is, you know, like the, the book, the scout mindset by Julia Galef. Uh, huh. yeah. Okay. So yeah, she, like, actually, this is just with, like, rationalists in general. And, you know, it's kind of, like, in the name, like, rationalists, right? Actually, although, like, I would say they have, like, a better understanding of this than most people, right? But they'll be, like, you know, most people, or at least, like, you know, most rationalists will be like this. Maybe not the kind of, like, top ones, the elite ones, right? But they'll be like, you know, most people are rational. And then you correct for, like, confirmation bias, uh, negativity bias, narrative bias, <laughs> Right. And then like you just go down the list, right? A lot of them can recite the list. And by the end of it, it's like, so why are you assuming that people are rational? Right? This seems like this seems like just like the completely wrong way of thinking about people in general. Uh and it just seems like, you know, uh it and it in terms of like in terms of like predicting how the world works, maybe 
maybe like someone like that, you know, maybe someone who's, who thinks that people are at base rational, but then corrects for like 10 different biases. Maybe that person will come to a similar answer as you or I, right? When asked like, what, what will this person's beliefs be? What will this, how will this person like decide on, you know, like what, what product to buy? Right. Maybe that person will come to like very similar insights. But to me, that's just like a completely extraneous, completely unnecessary way of thinking. It's like, no, if, if by the point you're correcting for like 10 biases, you're not even assuming that people are rational. So why even do that at the first place? Yeah, I, I haven't, I've, you know, I've listened to interviews with uh, Julio Gallif. I've never read the book, but I, actually I, I browsed it. I think I, I think I skimmed it, but yeah, that, uh, you know, what you say sounds right to me. I, I think it's very right. useful maybe to tell people they have it sort of in them, you know, to the extent you want to make them rational. Like there are areas of their life where they often do act rationally and, you know, I don't know, like, I don't know how you convince them to be that way about political ideas. I mean, you know, if there's no personal benefit to it. Right. Yeah, I think so. That's true. So I think where I want to spend the last 15 minutes of this podcast is uh, talking about the right uh, maybe the best way to to start this off is uh, why is the right not winning? I mean, what's 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 winning? What's what's losing? I mean, uh, what is the right? Uh, it's very philosophical. I mean, like <laughs> the abortion people, they're they're the pro life people. They're they're much you know they're the momentum is with them. Um, there's a when I was growing up, it was pretty unthinkable there'd be states without abortion clinics. Now there are many states without uh, abortion clinics, so they've won. Uh, people who don't like homosexuality, they've lost, you know, pretty decisively and pretty badly. Um, Biden about to sign a, you know, a gay marriage bill into law, which doesn't do all that much, actually. But, you know, whatever, you get, well, it's still a big change. Um, <clears throat> people who are, you know, right-wing on race, people who want low taxes, you know, compared to other industrialized countries, I think we're, you know, we have pretty low taxes. So, you know, what's winning and what's losing? Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I think, like, this is why I put it in an article responding to Tyler Cowen. Like, I think that just, like, the average amount of influence or, like, the average amount of power wielded on behalf of ideas supported by MSNBC versus, you know, the average support for ideas uh, wielded by, like, Fox News, right, or supported by Fox News, that ratio has been, like, strictly going into in favor of MSNBC for, like, several decades now, right, at least. Some some people think it's been going on monotonously for more than that. But I, I, I think it's, like, at least mostly agreed upon that for, like, I don't know, since since 2000 and 2006, at least, yeah. this has been, you know, a pretty straightforward direction. Although, I mean, I, I, probably say, I, do think, I do think we are moving left, actually. But if, if you would combine the cultural stuff plus the economic stuff in the sense that, like, the, you know, both parties are to the left economically. Uh, than they were uh, 12 years ago, right? It's like uh, the Obama, you know, with the, you know, like they're all, you know, basically, you know, the, um, you know, the Obamacare, I mean, that was like sort of, I don't know, like what a, now it's like the bare minimum, right? Of government involvement in healthcare, um, the way Biden talks about, you know, the rich, um, the, uh, <clears throat> the uh, level of government spending and the Biden stimuluses versus the Obama. And then like the lack of pushback, there's no Tea Party movement on the right, the sort of, you know, they're, reflexively anti-government spending or whatever, but it, it doesn't, there's not the passion for it. There was, there's no talks of like reforming entitlements, which was a thing 10 years ago. So 
you know, I think your premise actually is correct that the left, uh, things are moving left and then you have, you know, race, the culture, the culture stuff. Look, I think that, <clears throat> I think that a lot of, I think on the cultural stuff, I think that, you know, I think that social conservatism doesn't, doesn't sell well in a modern society. I think we see what's happening in Iran, in Iran right now. Um, I think secularization is sort of a inevitable trend. I think with the rise of, you know, the internet, uh, you know, Flynn effect, um, you know, uh, just people having sort of more choices and more access to information. I think that's good. You know, that was like, religion was like a bulwark to a lot of this, uh, stuff. The economic stuff, I think it's, um, I think social media has made us dumber. And I think a lot of left-wing economics is just dumb. Like, you know, I think opposition to free trade tends just to be dumb. And like, you know, there's not like, you know, all economists on the right and left still agree that, you know, free trade is a good thing. And, but it's easy to virtue signal if it becomes like a social media debate rather than a debate like in congressional committees. Um, you know, it becomes like, you just want to virtue signal that you're the most patriotic and the most caring about the workers. And, you know, the, the, you know, the arguments that are actually correct, but are a score low on social desirability bias, like free trade is good and sweatshops are good. I mean, like people like, I think you could read like, uh, a normal, like left-wing publication could write an article that sweatshops were good, you know, 30 years ago or 20 years ago, because they actually improved the incomes of people in third world country. I don't think you could, I don't think you could like get away with like an op-ed like that now. Um, and this is not about wokeness or anything really? like that. It's just, we're dumber and we can't think logically and we're just more emotional and we're just more into virtue signaling. And, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, I think that probably social media has a lot to do with this. Right. So, or actually, isn't there a contradiction there with Flynn effects, right? Or I guess Flynn yeah, effects getting, have decreased in well, countries recently. I think, well, I recently, think that if, they, if right, you took so. the people, well, yeah, the Flynn effect, I mean, the Flynn effect is, I probably shouldn't have said that for, you know, religio- increasing irreligiosity of the last 20 years because the Flynn effect has stopped or a reverse. So that's, you know, it's probably, I mean, it probably does explain some secularism because like, you know, it does correlate, you know, the, the Flynn effect with, decreasing religiosity but the u.s was sort of an outlier where like almost everyone believed in god but like you know i, th- I do think there is a uh you know there is a connection between the flood effect but maybe in the american america this was american exception uh exceptionalism uh you're you're right um we're not I, I, yeah we're, we're you know our debate is getting dumber i don't know if we're like getting dumber i don't know if that's the thing that happened in 20 years but it's going back we're talking about the more inclusive sort of political debate the the circle of people who have input into what policy is going to be. That's unquestionably getting dumber. Right, right. Uh, so that to me still doesn't necessarily give us an understanding of why uh, leftism is winning, right? Because if anything, like I think this is like less so in my model than in your model, but in your model, right, you, you definitely see the right wing as more dumb, right? Yes, of course. I mean, I think that you can give IQ tests to politically involved right wing people and left wing people. And you can look at like colleges that are uh, uh, the staffers of like congressmen and senators. I think this has happened before. And, you know, one of the SAT scores of the scores of the schools they went to, I don't think it's, I don't think it's uh, empirically defensible that that's not the case. Yeah. So, uh, in this case, right, why isn't the debate getting dumber being more beneficial to the right? Well, the right is get what, what we call the right, uh, is getting dumber because it's more in a populist economic direction, 
uh, rather than being a, uh, you know, more of a free market thing. So like, you know, it's sort of like, what's the right and what's the left? If you're a populist, you sort of, you might be happy at the direction of the, I still think this stuff could be exaggerated. I still think there's more in common with like the Paul Ryan Republicans than, you know, the, are really becoming like a left-wing party, but the, you know, it is moved a bit in that direction. Um, you have people like talking, saying nice things, you know, senators like Holly and Rubio and Cruz, my God, these, this will stop as soon as a Republican is in office. You know, it's just a cudgel to beat Biden with, but you know, they were, uh, cheering on the, uh, rail workers, uh, union. Um, so like populism, right? It's like going in that direction. And I think that's dumber. And it's like, but it's like moving right in a, in a certain way. Um, and then the, uh, and then like, and sort, and sort of the, um, yeah. And then the, and then the cultural stuff, you, you know, we are sort of moving, you know, right in a way like, so like, you know, so what in the 1990s, you know, this is another, you know, thing I love to troll people on. Like I used to watch Bill Maher on uh politically incorrect. Uh, he used to talk about like, it was a big news story when like these adult teachers would have sex with their like 14 or 15 year old male students. And Bill Maher would get up on TV and he would say, you know, this is ridiculous. Of course the women shouldn't be in jail. Um, Men and women are different. Like Bill Maher, you know, Bill Maher, the guy who's on HBO now and like, you know, very, uh, you know, liberal in every way. Although, you know, a little bit of a, a little bit of a contrarian, uh, still to this day. Um, but, and like some conservatives tried to dig that up not that long ago and they're like, Bill Maher defends pedophilia, right? Nobody batted an eye when Bill Maher, you know, made this case. So we've moved right on like, uh, you know, we've moved right, like in the more puritanical direction. Like the fact that we, uh, you know, we care about age gaps, like between Leonardo DiCaprio and his girlfriends, like 30 years ago, like nobody like problematized that. I don't know if that's like more conservative or more liberal, but it's like, it is sort of like more puritanical. Um, so we have gone in, you know, in that direction. And then like, that's our peak right wing victory. Then I think, you know, but it's a, the right has not, not won a whole lot. The win for the stupid, yeah, the stupid people. I mean, like, you, you know, it's, it's like, they, they call this pedophilia too, not like, like any age gap, like you see this on the, although the right, well, technically they require them to be under 18 for them to call it pedophilia, but they're like, you know, they're, they're gender egalitarian on this stuff. At least the ones I see on Twitter, not the ones who try to dunk on me. Um, but for the left, they'll call it. Like, like, is there all that, is there all that stuff, you know, is that even getting all that much traction? Like people, people calling like Bill Maher a pedophile for, you know, defending. No, it didn't get, but it, you know, nobody would have even, you're right. It didn't get, it doesn't get that much attraction, but like, you know, nobody would have even thought that like I, I, he couldn't like write a, you know, he couldn't like, you know, I think he would like be hounded like to a greater extent than he is uh now. Um So yeah, your, I mean, your question is a good one. Like, you know, social conservatism is associated with being dumb and we've gotten dumber. Um, so why, why don't we, uh, why aren't we socially conservative? And in a way, like, even like the willingness to offend religion, like Christopher Hitchens, like 20 years ago would say, you know, or 10 or 15 years ago would say like, all religion is bad, you know, including that includes Islam and like, but even the way he would talk about Christianity and like very insulting terms, there's sort of, there's sort of less of that I see in the elite media too. So like taking the sensitivities, even though there's less religion, taking the sensitivity of religious people seriously. Um, so it's like, yeah. Is it's it like, matter or is it just that it's not really relevant anymore? Yeah. Right? This is like Matt Iglesias wrote an article like this, right? He was like, culture wars used to be religious wars. And he was talking about like, uh, he was expecting more of a, and I think correctly, right, in hindsight, expecting more of a 
uh, blue wave in terms of uh, row and just like basically how how much people like maybe uh, 20 or 30 years ago, how much people, how much ire people had for the religious right, right? And yeah, I do think in a kind of like Nietzschean way, it's just completely unbelievable now. You could see our focus on certain culture wars as like unusually uh, a sign of dumbness, you know, regardless of what the direction moves. So like we, we fight about library books, like in New York times, we'll be like, you know, library book is taking out this thing. And it's just a dumb debate either way. Like if you care about like what's in the public library, like nobody, you know, kids have endless porn on their phone and like people are like having major news stories about like what's in the public library or not. Um, so a lot of the stuff I think is, you know, sort of over, emphasized and that's sort of like you know that's like just the debate is getting dumber rather than talking about i don't know the entitlement you know crisis and the future of the federal budget which used to be an issue in the 1990s and early you know 2000s but it's really nobody talks about it anymore yeah so so do you think do you think the right wing should really change change all that much at all uh should it make any shifts strategically uh should the right change at all um, it depends on what the, I mean, there's like, there's some things of the right does that are successful that I don't like. And there's some things, you know, that, you know, it depends on like, I don't want to just give advice to the right generally because I, I don't like the direction that, uh, that <laughs> the right is going to a large extent. Um, I want the right to, um, think what I think and then adopt the best <laughs> strategies to, to win and then implement what I want. Right. So yeah, I, that's, that's what I, that's what I'd like them to do. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, in terms of strategy, though, uh, do you like not want to say to the current right what, what you think the best strategy should be? Well, it depends or, on like, like how to. Who am I talking? <clears throat> who am I talking to? Am I talking to like populists? Am I talking to free marketers? I mean, am I talking to? Okay, if Republicans want to just win elections, like that's you know, the most neutral way to answer your question, and you know whatever the median yeah. Republican is right now, I think they should be as you know. They, did you read this this recent uh, Iglesias piece about uh, uh, what political messaging works? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's like be boring as possible, be, be as boring as possible. So I would nominate like generic white male businessman for every office. Uh, it doesn't have to be businessman, whatever, you know, longtime state senator and just let him say the boringest things possible and then get an office and just, you know, do what he's going to do anyway. I think that the, the disaster was, uh, in the last election was picking people who were, you know, first of all, had sometimes crazy views on abortion or election denial. I think these are the two things that hurt. But like more seriously, they just seem like either dumb or weird or somehow defective, like, you know, Herschel Walker being the sort of the uh, uh, most obvious uh, example of this. So, you know, if you want to win, don't um, uh, don't nominate those people. As far as like policy-wise, like you can have lasting impact, you know, have a lasting impact. I mean, I'm not going to surprise you by saying uh, civil rights laws is, is important. It's something they should focus on. Uh, you know, when McConnell, when the Republicans had the um, Senate um, after and after 2016, and they had the uh, presidency, um, McConnell basically had the right idea. Which you know, McConnell put his head down and basically said, "We're going to just conf- we're going to fill up the federal judiciary. Those are permanent lifetime appointments." He doesn't get credit for it. Nobody says you know McConnell was like a strategic genius, but like to adv- like effective altruism for like advancing conservatism. If you believe in conservatism, um, is just get the Senate effective however, conservatism. Effective conservatism, yes, get the Senate and just stack the you know with young conser- right wing people stack the federal judiciary. We got them. That's how we got the mask mandate overturned. You know, I'll be eternally 
grateful. I'll never think politics doesn't matter again. The fact that a federal judge threw out the mask mandate for uh, airports. Um, and you know, the, the, that was like the last, you know, that was the last or only, you know, federal mandate there was for, for masks. Um, so yeah, it, it mattered. Um, if we didn't have that judge, you know, if it went to a, uh, a liberal judge or a liberal circuit, you know, it would have, it would have, uh, gone the op- opposite direction. Uh, so yeah, be boring when, you know, be Mitch McConnell, basically just let Mitch McConnell, you know, do his thing. I mean, that's, that's, that's like the lamest, most boring answer possible. But if you want to advance conservatism, that's true. And then, like, you can debate, like, if you want to push, push McConnell in, like, a different direction on this issue or that issue, you can do that. But, like, the best way to do that is not to nominate weirdos um, or, you know, try to do anything radical or that scares uh, normal people um, during election season. I, you can you can have the sort of intellectual high level or debate, you know, either, you know, in uh, – in you know the pages of the Wall Street Journal or within Congress itself or like you know in a in a American Affairs or whatever, but yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't go to the masses for for backup. <laughs> right. How much uh, in terms of the current balance in say like the media environment and corporations? Let's say you know twenty twenty four, Ron DeSantis wins. Uh, repeals the civil rights laws, right? At least, you know, disparate impact, emotional damages, um, uh, hostile work environments, right? At least those parts. Maybe not, you know, like the original ones. But uh, how much does that, how much does that change the political environment in terms of what you can say, in terms of what's, you know, uh, in terms of uh, whether companies are, you know, still supporting uh, primarily left-wing people, like what kind of, how much impact does that actually have? You know, the, the, I've done a lot of research on this and, you know, I'm going to have more material coming out on this. It's surprisingly a lot more, you know, a lot more short-term impact than you think. So the civil rights act of 1991, I mean, I won't go all, people can look it up if they want. Um, I won't, I won't go into all the details here, but it basically made the civil rights. Link it in the notes as well. Yeah, the Civil Rights Act of 1991, uh, signed by uh, George H.W. Bush. Um, you look at the number of civil rights law; it, it made the civil rights law stronger. Um, the you know the the um, the lawsuits you know sort of uh, they they shot up. Um, the sexual harassment it was like the right to be free of sexual harassment was created by the Supreme Court. You know the, the these lawsuits shot up in the decades uh, after. Um, you know the American Disabilities Act sort of it's, it was strengthened in uh, around 2008, and I have to remember if the uh, you know, it, it was, uh, if it lines up exactly with the rise, but the ABA has seen a major rise, you know, and it's sort of like, it's become like its own monster. That's like, you know, it rivals the old civil rights for like how disastrous they are for the, uh, for the country. Um, so I think you'd get a lot of changes. Nobody's going to stand up and say, hi, I'm Jeff Bezos. And I used to like black lives matter. And now I'm a white nationalist or I'm a moderate or whatever. It's not going to be, <laughs> that. um, but it's going to be like, yeah, it's going to be subtle sort of changes. Um, they're going to be less afraid of lawsuits. They're going to be able to, uh, uh, they're going to be able to, um, uh, use you uh, more meritocratic uh, hiring practices and promotional practices without looking over their shoulder. But I think the bigger impact um you know, so you could see, you could, I mean, if you change, if you let me write the laws and you let me, you could see, uh, you know, you could see a collapse in lawsuits. And I have no question that in my mind that that would uh, change business practices. Now you'd have to go, you know, you hopefully go pretty far, uh, with that. Uh, but I think, you know, even weakening at the margins, um, in the long run, um, you're going to have new corporations rise up. You're going to have competition, you know, some, some, uh, industries and some, uh, firms, they're going to, um, just, 
out of inertia can continue doing the same things, but they're going to be, you know, outcompete and replace. There's a lot of turnover and dynamism in, in, in the economy. Um, and in the long run, yeah, corporations will not be, will not be as woke. Right. Do, do you think that's, I still don't like, if you were just to give a, like a ballpark percentage number, right. If you do think there is a kind of like strategic imbalance in terms of media, in terms of institutions, Right. It, it, let's say you have like, I don't know, whatever you think the, the ratio is, uh, ratio imbalance uh, towards uh, towards uh, left-wing ideas, ideologies are right now. What percentage of that do you think would be reduced by, by this action? Um, so what percentage of... Just like very roughly. Like of, of what? Of like how much... Like, well, what am I, what am I measuring? So, so let's say there's some, I think we both agree that there's some amount of bias just caused by various factors, civil rights law. Oh, you're saying um, pushing being one of the institutions in one direction rather than the yeah. other? Yeah. Ah, I think, you know, I don't know. This is just like, uh, you know, it, it depends on which institutions you're talking about for Business, I think it's much higher for, you know, NGOs or church, obviously churches that can't, you know, they're not subject to civil rights law, so it can't be the, the churches. So, you know, zero percent there, uh, for corporations in the long run. Like how much do it, like if the 1960s, you know, because it builds, it builds on 60 years of, of law and practice. Um, and it's hard to, it becomes hard to separate it at some point. But like if you ask me, like how, what percentage of like, the wokeness in institutions is the result of civil rights law and uh, like broadly defined, including like classifying by race and like, you know, requiring this in government contractors, I think a huge portion of it, probably 70, 80%. And if there was wokeness, like to a, a large extent, it would look very differently. It would maybe not include, you know, if we never classified Hispanics as a um, separate race, it, we'd probably maybe still be talking about black people. I mean, and there would still be riots and stuff, but, you know, Hispanics would be considered a, uh, another white ethnic group at, uh, at this point. Um, so, you know, like even the form and like, you know, the, 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 the intensity of it, but also the form would be very different. I think it would be limited to black people at the most. Um, if it wasn't for civil rights law, Hispanic wouldn't, you know, wouldn't even be a thing in our, in our culture. I'm pretty confident about that. And then women, I mean, the, yeah, I mean, the, the, there was, you know, a lot of innovation in sexual harassment law. I think that really, re, like, in corporations, like, companies, like, really fought back on that. I mean, Southwest went to court. They wanted just young, attractive, uh, they wanted young, attractive, uh, stewardesses, flight attendants, and, you know, they lost, uh, that, that, that case in the federal court. And, you know, golf club, there was a, you know, famous golf club that, uh, I, you know, I forget which one it was, but they didn't want to let women play. And this was a whole civil rights thing. Uh, so, like, there was so much organic, like, idea like their organic practice of society of like men and women being different and like having their own institutions and the you know the law really took like a sledgehammer um to all of that so yeah i mean i think you'd still have wokeness probably uh as applied to black people with the law and i think almost all of the rest of it uh you'd still have feminism you still have something like feminism um but i think yeah a huge portion of it you know otherwise would have would have never existed now you know, like to go back, like it's going to take a while because it's, you know, 60 years of, like I said, 60 years of practice. So it's not like the, you know, one year later, everything's going to change, but no, that's like, you know, you've let sort of things develop organically from there. Right. And do you think what's, what's interesting in the right is that it's always been this kind of 
know, it's, it's always been much more... It, it's weird because there was, like, this one... There was this one kind of, like, blip in time. I think under, you know, under... From, like, Bush to, you know, the first Obama term where the Democrats were seen as kind of, like, the bigger tent party. Uh, to me, like, almost always the Republicans have been, like, the bigger tent party, right? Maybe not, you know, like, uh, in the days of Lincoln, right? But at least in modern history since, like, at least since uh, Nixon, if not before that, right? It had always been a kind of, like, much more coalitional, much more kind of, like, the the internal tensions are obviously there, right? Since Reagan, there's obviously, like, the Reagan uh, three-legged stool, right? So... What do you think determines the balance of power between those coalitions? What do you think determines the balance of power between, say, like libertarians, uh, social conservatives, nationalists nowadays? Um, like within the parties, you think? Yeah, within the Republican Party. Oh, I mean, like everything we, I think everything we've talked about so far. I think the technology, I think the communications technology has pushed things in a uh, populist uh, direction on the on the right. Um, you know, events seem to drive a lot and like leadership seems to drive a lot. Like after, uh, you know, Bush, like didn't want to interfere in foreign countries. And then like, uh, there was a nine 11 and then, you know, it became like sort of part of the culture war to support, support the Iraq war. Um, you know, so there was like a lot of it was just contingent. Um, you know, Trump was also sort of had a connection and just a lot, you know, Trump, it's funny. It's like the, 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 uh, uh, it's funny because like, you know, the voter, voter fraud, like all these conservative states started passing these things to make it like harder to vote and like these things. And that, it was just completely because of like one man's ego, um, who was like, didn't like losing and like voted by mail, like Republicans went and like restricted vote by mail. That wasn't thought to, I think, ever thought to like naturally and inevitably favor the Democrats. So, uh, you have social, you have technology, you know, sort of making us, dumber you have these uh cycles where it's like you know trump and like yeah it's just like and so this is the tv this is the point of being a tv watcher party is like you're very easily impressionable um by what's on tv you can be interventionist in foreign wars or you can be uh anti-interventionist depending on you know what's what's going on um and then there's these like self-reinforcing dynamics like trump takes over and like the party becomes sort of more of a caricature of itself and then you know other you know it's this vicious cycle where you know these other the uh uh you know, the highly higher educated people flee. Now this is not permanent. Like all those, like a lot of those, like Brian Kemp won by 8% in, in Florida and, you know, Herschel Walker lost. So like, you know, it, 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 one good candidate, I mean, one good cycle, it's like, there's a lot of uh, resistance to, to leftism. I mean, there's a lot of mass, you know, discontent with, you know, just the whole thing. I mean, the just people are, you know, they don't like the race stuff. They don't like the gender stuff. Even if like, you know, even if it's like they're moving in that direction, it's still always way too far and always a turnoff to a mass audience. So the opportunity is there. You just sort of have to, you know, not, you know, not be Herschel Walker. I'm really obsessed with Herschel Walker. It's, it's different from any other candidate. I mean, you have to, you've seen the werewolf and the vampire thing. No. What is this? Oh, uh, just, just go, just uh, search, you know, Herschel Walker. I, I tweeted about it. Other people have tweeted about it. Herschel Walker, vampire, werewolf video. Okay. You don't have to do it now. Or do it now. It's your show. Whatever. We could, yeah, actually play it for the audience. It'd be, it'd be hilarious if they want to, if they're, if they're unaware of like the state of like the modern Republican party. Okay. Oh, I'm just looking at I'm just looking at uh, the the tweets right now. Okay, this seems 
yeah, this seems not like the best of times. Uh, I, I do think, you know, there, there is this kind of historical cycle, I think, over control of the Republican Party. Uh, you, I think, like, when I invited you to the second, to, to this episode, right, you sent this uh, series on, um, series on Newt Gingrich. By the way, Brian, are we both? Are I do you think both- there is this kind of, like... Are you are you explicitly Sorry? are you explicitly a conservative or Republican? Is that like it's implicit here? But the, no, I don't like, you say it. I think I wrote. I think I wrote. Uh, yeah, I, I wrote this in 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 one of my articles. I don't remember which one actually, but I basically said, you know, the relationship I see to the Republican Party is like very similar to like the relationship between like an economist who just points at the inflation rate and like maybe that economist like votes Republican, right? Like, or like more likely than not, you know, someone who's very concerned about inflation will like vote Republican. But actually I've, I've also never voted, but you know, I totally see why people kind of like perceive it that way. But also I'm mainly, I don't know. I'm mainly focused not really on moral claims, but just on like factual claims. Just on, like, you know, what is actually a more effective vaccine policy? Yeah, like, what is actually also, a more effective... You're also interested in, like, you're interested in the dynamics of the right. You seem to have a, a stake in it, right? Yeah, I think so. Like, it's more just more life, interesting. The reason you, you seem to be, yeah, you have a stake in it. You don't seem to be talking about, like, inner... I mean, we just spent, like, the first half hour and a half talking about the left, Right, so I'm not yeah. sure if that's true. Maybe, maybe but right. uh, yeah, I am definitely interested in the kind of like you know the organization that is there. The the kind of like new right political theory I think is like very interesting. But it's also you know Yarvin went on this podcast with Michael Anton, and he was basically talking about these two types of conversations that uh, that people have. Right, one type of conversation where they're essentially trying to build a coalition you know, where they're trying to, like, please each other. And one type of conversation where you're basically trying to best, most accurately describe what is happening, right? Or, like, basically get to a factual claim. And to the extent that, like, that is the goal of certain people on the right who I talk to, right? I I, I much prefer those people. And, you know, there are people on the left who I think are like that as well, right? The episode before this, I think, was with Freddie DeBoer. Actually, it might not be. You might come after that. Um, yeah, I think I think two episodes ago was with Freddie DeBoer, who I've had on my podcast twice. Um, yeah, I mean, I asked you this question like the first time, uh, right? Why I think that there are so many, more, why there are more people on the right who are kind of not concerned with status than on the left, right? That's kind of also very much related to the stuff we've been talking about as well. I, I think if it was the other way around, right, it would be pretty probable that there are more people who are on the left who are coming on this podcast yeah. than who are on the right. It's just, you know, it's just the way things are. Oh, interesting, interesting. Yeah, I don't know if it's true to, I mean, go direct, go in the other direction, but I don't, I don't know if it's true that the right is less concerned with status, although that was sort of the basis of my whole theory. <laughs> yeah, so I don't, I don't know. Maybe I need to. Maybe I, I don't know if I need to resist it that way here. Put it that way. I sort of. I or it's not even that, right? It's like the tail end, right? Like there, there are more people like you, or like even people who are like who have very different ideologies, right? Like people who you probably disagree with a lot, like uh, So Rob Amari, for example, 
right? Uh, he is someone who is like obviously when, when he like talks when he goes on like a podcast, right? If I've invited him here, uh, although he uh, did not accept, <laughs> but oh, what you know, there. Uh, I don't think it was like negative. I think he just like he was just busy, uh-huh. like uh, whatever. But you know, there are people on like various parts of the right who are just you know basically dedicated to saying true things and will not like basically will not uh, self. Uh, and this isn't to say like there aren't lots of parts of the right who self censor, right? I think with re- uh, elected officials, I think like all the elected officials self censor to a large degree. But there are just a lot more people on the right who will just like consider any idea, think think it through, you know, and basically engage with any topic. And uh, this is just just like the number of people who are going to do that on the left is just much lower. Yeah, it's not zero. But it's much lower. I don't. I don't know. Is that is that right? I I wouldn't engage with anyone on any. Th- I think you just have more in common with the right wing people. I mean, I think that's the simplest. Like, like I don't know. Like, would I go on like a feminist podcast? Like, probably not. If it was obscure, no. If it was like a, you know, if it was could have been fun, and you know, it's a, you know, it's like interest. It's like in the, being on a podcast is like you know whether it's like a combination of inherent interest and how much I want a signal boost and how interesting the person I think I think is, and then like you know I'd go on like MSNBC or something because obviously you know it's not because I want to signal boost them or think they're good, uh, but because it's like a big audience. So yeah, I think it's my. I think there are left wing people who would go on you know, you're sort of, you're still obscure at this point. So like, it's very unlikely that a left-wing person, not because they dislike status, but because they, they don't think you're all that great. I mean, while people on the right who are a little more famous might, might think you are pretty cool and, you know, might think it's worth talking to or interesting to talk to. If you were like a, you have, yeah, I do think they're, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah. So that's why, that's why I like the, the, the kind of metaphor that I used before, right? I do think that's the position that I'm in where a lot of the stuff I say just makes me more sympathetic to the right than to the left. Right. I'm a big critic of lockdowns, but I think like, you know, it's just empirically true that lockdowns in 20 years will say that like the effects of lockdowns, especially on children, but also in general, the economic effects as well were much worse than the consequences of the virus itself. Yeah. Now, like that's a thing that more right-wing people believe than more uh, than left-wing people believe. Okay. Right. That's fine. And and because like politics is so like globally correlated, right. This is the case, but like, is that like an inherently right-wing belief? I don't know. Like maybe like, I think a cost benefit analysis is more, right-wing in today's culture and so you need cost-benefit analysis you need to even like okay that, that's just that's just ridiculous right that's like saying you know like statistics is right-wing and, and you know certain statistics are right-wing yeah. but they yeah are. but like i don't know that, yeah, that's it's... kind of i didn't raise this point but that's also something i kind of disagree with you on when you're talking about you know like the victories that the right-wing had you know like people being more favorite people like being more favorable towards things that are true, I don't really characterize that as like a right wing victory, even if those things are more convenient to the right wing. Like that's just like, you know, it is true that there. It's obviously true that there are like population level correlations between like political beliefs and like empirical beliefs, right? Like that, that's just obviously true. But I don't think that makes those beliefs inherently right wing. I think you should consider those things in like very different ways, like. It, to me, like a question, you know, I have like a, oh, I have like yeah. some like very right wing beliefs, right? I basically believe like 
and actually this I, I think this is something that you disagree with right i basically believe that like promiscuity is like generally immoral right i would never i would never do that i don't really think it's possible for the state to like enforce that right but that's not like something that i think you know that's not what i like write articles about right? I, I write uh, articles about like uh, about how like lockdowns are a terrible idea i don't write articles about you know I don't write articles about, you know, why, why people should be like committed to one person for their entire life. Mm. Right. Like that, I don't, I, that I see as like, basically, you know, it's like, it, it's not reflective. It's like a, it's it's not, it's an ought, it's not an is, right. It's not a question of like, it's, it's not like we'll make some kind of like, you can sure you can make some like evolutionary argument. You can observe, like you can observe, you know, like what are the rates of mental illness between people who behave in one way versus people who behave in the other. And like, you know, that might convince some people, right? But in the end, that's that's very different than a question of like, you know, even even something like lockdowns, of course, it depends on your utility function. But I think like very clearly you can make like big, you know, I agree. Big, I, mean, I agree. I, I agree. Uh, you think you're... Changes in people's opinions based on just like observations about the world around you. Yeah. I agree. I mean, and like, it's not, I shouldn't say, you know, it's like economic trade-off versus life. I think conservatives are more likely to use cost, but I, and I agree with you. Cost benefit analysis is just a way of saying like logic, like everyone should be, you know, things should, could be considered from a cost benefit analysis. But then like, if you look at like something like terrorism, like you're too old to remember, like probably too young to remember the heyday of the war on terror, but it was just ridiculous. And conservatives would talk like, you know, we have to bankrupt the country, fight every war in the world, you know, to, you know, get, get the probability of a, any terrorist attack down to zero. And there was just ridiculous. And liberals would make rational sort of cost benefit analysis uh, kinds of arguments on this, but you know, the, the bias was different. So yeah, either side could chuck, you know, cost benefit analysis, you know, when it's, uh, when it's right, you're right. But I do think, I think you just have to sort of, um, I, you know, I think you are, you know, I want to. I want to start calling myself a right wing rationalist. Would you identify with my movement if I if I called myself that? A right wing. You don't have to be with. You don't have to hit your right. I know. Head. I also don't like, like the rationalists. Oh, you don't like the rationalists? Or like I don't know. I like those people, but to me, like rationalists have much more of an accept, a, a obsession of like what processes people use to get to a conclusion than like what the actual conclusion is. Right? Whether a belief is true or false. Versus like how they get to a belief. But you and are, so, you know, you are a process person. You are not a person. I mean, like, I know you care about like the ultimate beliefs, but you are a person who likes ideas. Like, I think it, I don't think you feel comfortable in a movement where it's all just grunt, grunting and like, you know, cable news hosts and, and whatever. So there's like a part of you that's like very sort of intellectually honest. That's intellectually curious. And like, I think that's like the right wing rationalism thing. It's like, I have these methods of like, reason and cost benefit analysis and thinking about cognitive biases and being self-reflective. Um, and at the same time, I end up coming to right-wing conclusions on a lot of things. That to me is like sort of a combination, right? And that's why you're not just a pure rationalist. You, or you're not a pure right-winger. You disagree with both of them on some things, but you do have part of that process in you and you do have sort of the conclusion in you that's like sort of these things are usually at odds because a lot of rationalists are liberal and a lot of right-wingers are religious or uh or like even non-thinking and so instinctual in their sort of orientation i mean like here's the here here's like ironically here's the anecdote i would tell right is that when i went to ea eadc right you have you ever seen that meme that's like you know patrick the spongebob character and he and he's dropped his wallet and 
and this other guy goes up to him and he says like is this your wallet he says no is this is your name is your name patrick yes uh, this name tag is it yours it is is this your wallet no it's not my wallet it's kind of like that right where where they'll basically agree with me on every point in terms of pandemic cost and uh, cost benefit analysis and they'll be like so you think republicans had better policies right you would support republicans uh republican pandemic policy right and they'd be like no they're crazy and I I would say, like, empirically, which policy do you think was better, right? And and they'll, like, they'll agree with me, and they'll basically be put off by it, basically because, you know, and you could say this is because they're liberal, right? But basically because, you know, people did not come to conclusions for the same reason, even if they were the same conclusions, which to me is, like, kind of silly. Yeah. That, to me, is kind of, like, the problem that I have with rationalists, all encapsulated. Yeah. Although, you know, I I can understand, like, why you would trust someone more if they follow the correct steps to get to a conclusion. If, like, a guy just happened to be right by accident, you know, just because he's tribal, you might worry about, you know, putting him in power and what he's going to do next time. So it's not completely illogical. But if they can't even admit that they agree with the Republicans on that one issue, yeah, that's just, they're not being very good rationalists. They're, They're being irrational in that situation. No, but I think they agree that they, like, admit, like, to the policy, right? They, they like agree that that policy is preferable, right? It's kind of like one, it's kind of like the Nietzsche, I wrote an article about this, right? Like the EA's, EA's like unbelievability problem, right? Like to take things seriously in this generation is kind of like, it's kind of like there, there's, there's a very, there's a, there's like a wall between basically, you know, what you think is true and what, it, there's there's like a huge wall between instrumental and empirical rationality, right? Uh, and so basically, like a lot of these people will, you know, in the end, it it's kind of like it is that kind of like status thing. It is that kind of like precarity thing. I think where even though the, the this is like the thing, right? They they are kind of rational about it. They'll admit that the, the that the uh, pandemic policy, like they'll admit that DeSantis' uh, pandemic policy is preferable. And then they'll be like, oh, but, and then they'll be like people who are very enthusiastic about this, right? And, and this will be like a very important issue to them. But in the end, you know, they still would not say, they, they still would not say, you know, then I guess I would vote for DeSantis, at least in, at least in the state level, right? Even at that, even in like those narrow, narrow constraints, right? People would not say that. And, and that, you know, that kind of like basically, I think the process thing just ends up being an excuse for like guilt by association. So you think and, like, they would the same not kind uh... of status games, and it's just you know to, to okay, the extent okay, that okay, like okay. The, yeah, the yeah, criticism. Yeah, you think the rationalists are not are it just sounds like <clears throat> it doesn't sound like a problem with rationalism. It sounds like a problem with rationalists. So that's why I'm telling you you should identify you should you should uh, identify with the ideals of rationalism, but then modify it. You doesn't have to be right wing or some you know have some kind of modifier, some kind of adjective to you know avoid that. Yeah, I, I think like also. I mean, at this point, I've talked to a fair number of people who are really into, like, right-wing political theory, right? Like, like a good example is, like, Yoram Hazoni, right? And to me, you know, th- this actually kind of is a self, is a version of that same criticism, like the self-criticism. I'm kind of, like, on one hand, I'm kind of, like, convinced by some of those arguments. On the other hand, the kind of, like, you know, there is a sort of fervor in both, like, the left and right-wing 
that you know the the fervor matches the kind of ideological arguments or the kind of matches like the political theory arguments but it is a sort of thing with gen z that i think it's like very hard to bring myself to you know fully it is like the kind of Nietzsche unbelievability thing, right? So you have like basically faith in God. I don't think I can have, you know, it's, it, this isn't even like a question of God, but it's like, it, I, I don't even think I can have that kind of like loyalty to a political movement. That seems like something that's very difficult for me to kind of like really identify myself with. And, and I think you, you kind of like seem the same way, right? Uh, uh, no, I don't think so. I, I, I don't like this particular right wing. I wish I had a movement to fully identify with. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm realistic enough to know that's like impossible given how disagreeable I am. Um, but I think it's, you know, it doesn't have to be Republican or Democrat or right or left in that broad terms, but I do believe in political action and I do believe that like, you know, it's don't just, you know, for myself, at least not standing over in the corner and just saying, theoretically, you should do X, Y, Z. It's like, no, this coalition is better than that coalition. Um, and they should, they should win. And this is how they do it. I think that's, I'm, I'm fine thinking about that and identifying with, you know, certain political movements who are close to, you know, close to where policy gets made. Right. I don't know. Like the, the thing with, Like, that's the thing, right? Like, right-wing... Like, you're kind of... Like, here's the problem with, like, right-wing rationalism. There's, like, right-wing rationalism as, like, you know, the people who are... Who think similarly to Richard Hanania, which I would feel, like, much more comfortable identifying with. And then there's, like, you know... But most people don't think of that when they think of right-wing rationalism. They think of, like, right-wingers and rationalism. <laughs> But it's, I don't, I really but don't with like either of those. Okay, so if I call it Hananiaism, you will you will identify you'll identify with that. I, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to. At least more so. At least more so. Well, I mean, the fact that the people don't identify. Yeah, you know what? Sure, let's go with Hananiaism. <laughs> well, it's the fact that they don't go. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, these things, they're sort of contradictory. Like, the modern right is, like, sort of anti-rational. So, like, what is right-wing? You know, it's not conservative rationalism. It's That's not my ideology. That, like, that wouldn't work. But there is, right, you know, something right-wing. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the fact that those things, it makes you think of right-wingers and it makes you think of rationalists. But actually, like, what is right-wing about this, actually? What is right-wing? I believe in inequality. I believe in genetics. I believe in markets. Um, I don't believe in... What is right-wing about this that isn't just, like, a factual observation? Well, I mean, just, I think, I, yeah, well, everyone thinks their views are the factual observations. I mean, I, you know... And no, I think, like, most people's opinion on, like, gay marriage, right, is not driven by, you know, like, what are, like, the happiness statistics. Like, maybe that's some people's arguments, right? But, yeah, like, that's... the core reason why they believe gay marriage is right or not wrong is not based on, like, statistics or not based on, like, utilitarianism. Well, mine, mine, it's just so... based on, like, an axiomatic moral belief yeah well i mean that's why you would be a rationalist if you are one of those people right okay yeah i i think like if you extend like rationalism to be like a very big tent of rationalism and not like the rationalism that exists in practice then yeah no that's why it's um, a new thing but, but then i'm like not really confused about what's right wing about this movement either 
what is I just told you it's pro so it's just it's pro market it's 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 against the current rationalists because they're often anti market they're often PC um, they like lockdowns and I think all that stuff sucks so I want to say I'm something else right but I'm also committed to you know I like reading rationalists I, I'm committed to sort of the you know the the sort of uh, uh, you know the heuristics and the um, you know the cognitive habits. Um, but uh, yeah, I think they end up in the wrong place. That's why I'm not right-wing and I'm not a rationalist. That's why right-wing rationalism, and maybe I'm not married to this term, but, you know, this is, if I have to describe myself in some way, you know, that's why I think that that can potentially work. Uh, in the interest of time, I'll say that I'm, uh, I'll be the first to sign up for Hananiaism. I'm going right. to, thanks, thanks for coming you. on. <laughs> I'm going <gonna, laughs> to draft you <laughs> rationalism, whether you like it or not. Okay. All right. Thanks. <laughs> okay. That was my episode with Richard Hanania. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, just like I said at the beginning, something great that you could do to help us out is to let a friend know in person or online. Other than that, you can subscribe to the show to get another episode, but this time you'll have to wait a little bit longer to get a brand new episode. It is the winter holidays coming up. I'm mostly going to be uh, not necessarily interacting that much with the outside world, but really thinking about these ideas, taking a break, going on vacation. And that unfortunately means you will not get any brand new from the New World episodes in the next two weeks. In three weeks, same time, same place, you'll get it from the New World episode, and you'll have to be subscribed to get notified for that. And in the next two weeks, I think what I'll do is I'll republish some of my favorite episodes from the first three seasons. So next week, I think I'm going to republish an episode with Sam Oberia, which is still the episode that I myself have re-listened to uh, the most times. And then the week after that, I'll republish an episode with Tyler Cowan, which my initial impression of it while I was doing the podcast was not that great, mostly because I had a problem with my own time management. There were a lot of questions I wanted to ask Tyler that I just didn't have the time to do but that a lot of people in my audience really enjoyed. So those are the two episodes that uh, we'll be replaying. You can also listen to them right now uh, in the podcast feed. You just need to scroll down a bit, and you'll see that. And other than that, uh, you'll be able to catch another brand new episode of the From the New World podcast in three weeks. See you then.